Sensibly Speaking podcast. This is Chris Shelton, critical thinker. And uh, I am this week, uh, actually, first I should say that this podcast is available on YouTube with video uh, for those of you who are watching. And it's also available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, and uh, on my Sensibly Speaking website, sensiblyspeaking.com. All right. This week, I have a special guest, Nathan Rich, former Scientologist, uh, second gen, grew up in Scientology like I did. Uh, he was featured on Leah Remini's uh, Scientology in the Aftermath. He has been, uh, he's had uh, some pretty long talks with Aaron Smith-Levin and uh, other exes, and now I finally got him on my podcast. And uh, we are talking, he is in China. So it's Sunday morning for him, Saturday night for me. So uh, good morning, Nathan. <laughs> Good evening. Uh, hello from the future. Sunday yeah. is wonderful, by the way. <laughs> excellent, excellent. I'm glad Sundays. I'm glad we're going to survive till Sunday. Yeah. It, let me just tell you that some people describe me as a third generation. <clears throat> Excuse mm-hmm. me. I don't know uh, if what's more accurate, but uh, my grandmother was also a Scientologist, but my but my aunt is the one who brought it in. So I don't know if that's second or third, oh. but yeah. No, third is totally accurate. I think uh, I just learned about this as a term when I was at the uh, the International Cultic Studies Association conference a couple months ago, that yeah, there's this term, SGAs, second generation adults. And that's, of course, you know, people who grew up in a cult and, and, and have cultic beliefs or whatever from meaning they were raised with it. They didn't walk in off the street. And I think that moniker is supposed to apply for all generations. So that's you know, so it's sort of a, it does double duty that way, I think. But well, so- I'm, not, I'm not necessarily sure that I accept the adult part of that, but uh, the rest <laughs> of it, I'm probably. Okay, good. So, uh, okay. So I had, God, man, we got, we were talking a little bit before we got started here and I just have like so many questions. First off though, um, you know, oh, not everybody who comes to my channel or listens to my podcast has seen Leah Remini's Scientology in the Aftermath. Uh, or is going to have necessarily seen a whole lot of, you know, stuff you've done before. I think most people will, but not everybody. So let's, so for those few who are not, could we just do a little summary of your Scientology history? Sure. So um, I was born into a Scientology family. um, And by the time I was, you know, uh, running around and, you know, asking questions as a small kid by, you know, five, let's say, by, by the time I was actually sort of coming around to being aware, um, everybody in my family other than myself and my two kid cousins were all deep into the OT levels. Um, my grandmother was OT eight. My mother was OT three. My aunt was OT five and my other aunt was in the Sea Org. And my, one of my cousins was in the uh, cadet org and my other cousin was a Scientologist. And so, so that's kind of, um, uh, you know, it started with my grandfather and my grandmother and they had three daughters and all three of them were Scientologists. All three of them married Scientologist men and had Scientologist babies. Uh, and I'm one of those babies. And, um, uh, so I'll kind of, to keep it a bit brief, just because you want to overview, essentially what happened is I, it it didn't take well to me. I had 
I, I just wasn't really accepting of it, even though I believed that it was true. I didn't want to participate in it. And we can sort of talk about that if we want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I was eight years old, I got sent to the Mace Kingsley Ranch um, in Palmdale, which is, this is the ranch time period that had Wally Hanks and the um, paddling and child molestation and uh, other uh, abuses. And then let me, um, let me stop you for a second and ask you, what year are we talking about? Eight years old, you go to the ranch. What year was this? So that's a that's a very sneaky way to ask how old I am, Chris. I'm very disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so this is 1990. 1990 is when I was at the Mace Kingsley Ranch All for right. eight months and 11 days. And um, so then I, I was there for about, you know, like I said, eight months, 11 days when I was eight years old. And then due to a death in the family, um, I was taken out and then... Um, the death was my grandfather. He was the only non-Scientologist in the family, and he died in a way that is sort of put Scientology at, at one of the, the sort of factors in why he died. And so I was taken out, and I went to go live with my grandmother immediately after this happened. So 39 years of marriage destroyed, and I went to go live with her alone uh, during that time. And then uh, for six months. And then my mother finally came out to where we were, which was, uh, which was, of course, we had moved by then from LA to, uh, Clearwater. And, um, and then I kind of went to school, all Scientology schooling, of course. And then, uh, after a while, basically things, uh, you know, started slipping again and I got sent back to the Mace Kingsley ranch this time, 1996, um, for three years. Uh, and this ranch was, it's the same company and everything, but it, it had moved to New Mexico because Child Protective Services were investigating them in, in California. So uh, I, I was there for three years. Um, almost all of that three years, I was not allowed to communicate with my family um, until the very end. And then I got out of there and I ran away from home. Um, and then I tried to come back uh, home a couple times and I wasn't accepted and my mother told me never to contact them again, never contact the family, et cetera. Um, and that was in 1999 and I was homeless living on the streets for about seven years. Um, and then after that, um, I slowly started piecing together some kind of life and, and sort of went from there. And I really didn't have much to do with Scientology after that, until last year, when I met Mike Rinder and Leah Remini uh, to, to go on the show to get my story out, which I had been trying to do for several years, actually. Um, and then, you know, and, and now my involvement with Scientology is, is talking to people like you about, you know, the ideas about it and sort of the experience. Wow. Wow. Three years what, 13 to 16 or 16 to 19? It was 14 to 17. 14 to 17. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Not, you know, it's not like those are formative years or anything. It's not like not those are influential all. years in your life. You know, it's not like anything important happens between 14 and 17. Yeah, not at all. Man. Jesus, man. Uh, okay. I mean, I don't really care. I mean, short of, you know, somebody literally being a criminal as a, as a, as a child, I don't really care what level of delinquency is involved. Parents shouldn't be disowning their kids, you know, that's pretty uncool. 
to say yeah. the least. Well, the, the level of delinquency involved, um, there, you know, Scientology put out a video, you maybe saw it, where they sort of attack me, you know, uh, and they, they kind of paint me up as like this lifetime criminal that, you know, they, oh, that's the only choice that we had. Um, I don't know if you've seen it or if anybody listening has seen it, but um, it's an interesting video because what they do is they say things like, well, he got sent to the ranch because the only other option that we had at the time was jail. And I'm like, I was eight years old, first of right. all. The worst thing I had done when I was eight was uh, I think I stole some candy and baseball cards. And of course, the main thing was I didn't really want to do courses and auditing. That was the real reason. And then when I was 14, now keep in mind that I was 14 years old. The worst thing I had done, I hadn't had sex. I hadn't done any drugs, none, not even weed. All I had done was drank alcohol once and uh, and shoplifted like, you know, whatever it is that you shoplift when you're young, like basically nothing, you know, and yeah. uh, and that was it. And and the, the, the real reason, again, was that I wasn't getting with the program of being a Scientologist. I, I just didn't like the courses and the auditing. I just never liked it. And that, and, and that, plus I joined the Sea Org for, um, about two, three months and, um, and that kind of got my, my mother's hopes up and, and then I think crushed them and she just reacted in that way. So it's not even like I was stealing cars and doing, you know, being a gangster or anything. I was just a kid, you know, just a regular, in my, in my view, kind of a regular guy, you know? Well, you didn't do anything from your description just now that I didn't do. And yeah. I was, I was kind of a, you know, not a model kid, but I was a pretty good kid, but I literally did everything you just said. <laughs> I shoplifted, I got drunk, I, you know, uh, I just yeah. didn't have, uh, I didn't have parents, I think that were as strict as, as yours in terms of the Scientology stuff. They were certainly committed Scientologists, but they weren't uh, harsh disciplinarians, let's put it that way. Yeah. You know, worst thing I had to do was condition formulas and write my OWs and, you know, that kind of stuff as a kid. I didn't have really intense disciplinary actions taken on me. My parents never touched me, you know, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, you know, my dad would get mad and that was all the discipline I needed. <laughs> I, I responded very easily. So, uh, so I didn't have, you know, any of that stuff. But, uh, but I know that these kids who get sent off to this ranch, I, I had Larissa Smith on my channel here and we talked ex- pretty extensively about her experiences and she also went to Mojave and then went down to New Mexico for a little while. I don't know if her path crossed yours at all. Years-wise, I can't recall. But, um, but she, you know, similar thing. It was just kind of like the Scientology parents. They didn't really have time to deal with the kid. They were more, there were other things, quote-unquote, more important. And, oh, here's a promise of some place we can ship them off to, and they'll take care of everything. And help yeah. them, you know, this wonderful person. Yeah, model Scientologists when they return. Right. Was, were, so what, so I'm not, I don't want to make un, unwarranted assumptions. What, what, what were your parents like? So I never had a father um, and I didn't have any uh, siblings. So it was always just myself and my mother. We lived in Los Angeles and my, uh, you know, my family is, it's always hard to describe a family. So you sort of have to start from the top. So I have, I, you know, when I was young, I had a grandmother and a grandfather on my mother's side. 
And I never had a grandmother and grandfather on my father's side because he they already disconnected from that entire family before I had any real memories. So I had the grandmother and grandfather, and then they had three daughters. So my mother and my two aunts. And one of those uh, aunts lived in New York, and one of them lived in Florida. So my mother and I, we lived in Hollywood. I, I lived at the Shangri Lodge right across the, the very small street from Celebrity Center. A yeah. lot of people live there. And um, so I grew up right across the street from Celebrity Center. And, um, and so it was just me and her. And she, she was, like I said, very, very, very much into Scientology. And the way that I grew up and was exposed to the world was through the lens of Scientology. I asked a lot of questions when I was young. I'm sure you did too. I was a very much like a why, 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 but why, but why kind of kid. And all of the answers were Scientological, if you will. And of course, you don't really realize that when you're young, but looking back, you know, the way that I understood all of reality was deeply tied to Lafayette's writings. So um, every fork in the road, every decision, every moral problem every time that we didn't know what to do or I had a question it was always about getting the reference and seeing what source says and you know looking up HCOPLs and HCOBs and you know had all the greens and the uh the the red volumes and that you know the admin dictionary when I was a kid I used to flip through it to try to find some some of the space lore you know oh you know confederacy wow you know yeah and um my mother to her credit, let's say, she was very, very honest and, and open with me. She answered the questions. She didn't say like, oh, you'll find out one day or don't, you know, don't bother me, kid. She would answer. Now, I think that that probably changed. It probably didn't have the exact effect that she wanted in that, you know, I'm not a Scientologist now, obviously. But it also meant that like when I was growing up, I understood Scientology in a deep way already. Like even as a very young kid, I was already thinking about thetans and implants and, um, you know, implants. all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. You, you were thinking with implants when you were just a little kid. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I was, uh, when I was nine and I was living with my grandmother after my grandfather died. And, and I talk about a lot of this stuff in, in the book that I'm writing as well. But um, I, I tried to commit suicide. And the thoughts that I was having during that suicide attempt was I was thinking about Mars. And I was thinking about how it's going to be, I'm nervous but excited to go to Mars to see this implant station. And like wondering how I could get there and check it out without getting implanted because I wanted to come back in a new body, but re- try to remember this life. So I didn't do it again. So it was wow. very much part of my life. That's actually pretty intense. I have very strong memories as a child of having concepts of, you know, the, the brain is just a switchboard that the Thetan operates to run the body and yeah. I remember very distinctly one day trying to explain this to all my other friends. And they just, you know, this is a bunch of six or seven year olds, right? So they're running around me, uh, making fun of me, you know, doing this, doing that, making like they're playing with switchboards and stuff. And I was just like, guys, shut up. I'm trying to explain this to you. And, they, you know, and it was just, you know, tease, tease, tease. So 
that kind of shut down my ability to talk about Scientology with my friends. I learned very early on that I was just going to be ridiculed. But the concepts of it, I'm definitely tracking with you because I had, um, of course, the whole don't be banky thing. You know, stop being banky, stop using your reactive mind, you know, calm down, you can control this, uh, was the standard Scientological, you know, parent patter or, or, or words they would use. Um, but I don't think I really thought a lot when I was a kid about my spirituality. It sort of was the idea. It was there. I, I, I was, I, if you'd asked me, I would have said, yes, I'm a spiritual being. I'm, I'm, you know, but that, but the full concept of what that meant, and I was a bookish kid. It's actually, I'm looking back on this kind of surprised. I didn't think more deeply about it. Well, you, you, you may get me started on, on books and, uh, <laughs> and how they, uh, and, you know, I have this sort of weak theory going on about how I think books kind of can affect the way that you think. Uh, but anyway, I don't want to ramble about that. For myself, I had um, almost the inverse experience. I, I, I was, you know, I was always by myself. You know, I, when I mm-hmm. wasn't at Me home too. alone, yeah. I was at, it, you know, Stan's daycare center or wherever it was. And I was just by myself. And I just thought a lot about this type of stuff. I was always thinking about um, next lifetime the, the, the space up Thetans, trying to understand all, all of the sort of deeper parts of Scientology. I was very curious about life. And to me at that time, life was intertwined with Scientology. There was no difference, as you know. I mean, there's not, you're not, you're not taught like, oh, everything works this way, but we talk about it this way in Scientology. No, it's, it's the same thing. And so the more curious I was about life, the more curious I was therefore about Scientology. And I was just digging in deep. And my, and my mother, like I said, she would, she would talk about this stuff all the time. So if I said like, Oh, you know, I love dinosaurs when I was a kid and I'd say, you know, oh, I asked her about like the ice age and she would just tell me it was, it was a Thetan that came and blew a hole in the ozone and, you know, sucked the air out and basically froze over the, the planet and stuff. I mean, it was just how it was just totally normal conversation for us. She would come into my my room sometimes, or I would, she'd be in the hallway and she'd stop and she'd go, Oh, wow. You know, oh, there's a Thetan just like where there's a, be- she called them beings. There's a being like right here, you know, we're just, you know, I, I, we're communicating right now. And she, you know, it was, it was all the oh, time. Wow. Oh, that was a very different experience than I had. Uh, my parents never, ever pulled that stuff with me. Did you, were you into sci-fi or, or fantasy when you were a kid? Did you, you, you read a yeah. lot? Did you read? Yeah. My, my mother had you know, Isaac Asimov and all the sci-fi stuff. And, you know, of course to her, these were, this was whole track recall. So she would all, you know, I couldn't read those types of books cause I was too young, but um, I loved sci-fi movies and anything that had the taste of that, like anything from like the abyss to, you know, whatever it was, I just thought it was super, you know, tracky. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. My here, what my father alluded to things. Uh, my parents did the OT levels um, when I was about eight, nine, ten years old. Uh, we were living in Pasadena at the time, and uh, I remember my mom auditing. You know, she'd close all the doors. I had to stay in my room, and it was just very quiet in there. You know, and one time I snuck up to the door, 
put my ear to the door and I swore I was being absolutely ghostly silent. And then I just heard her in the room, Chris, go back to your room. And I was like, ah! and I sort of <laughs> snuck back to my room. I had no idea what she was doing in there. She was solo auditing. Um, and she didn't say anything. It was, it was silent, right? Because that's how solo auditing is done. You're not sitting there talking to yourself when you're doing it. So I didn't have any idea what all that was about. It was kind of this mysterious sort of thing. I didn't really like mysteries. You know, I don't like mysteries. I don't like not knowing something. I like figuring things out. So, uh, but I couldn't figure this out. And my parents weren't going to tell me. But from time to time, my dad or my mom or both of them would sit me down. And of course, there was all the word clearing and the study tech and all the ethics conditions, all the mundane, practical Scientology stuff I experienced as a kid. Um, but the stories, my dad would sometimes start going into these stories about Mars and Venus and space and, you know, and, and, and I think I, you know, we had parties where all their Scientology friends would come over and, um, and talk Scientology and talk this and talk whole track. And I'm growing up around this. So this was, this was my normal. Um, but from time to time, my dad would drop these kind of mystery bombs, you know, oh yeah, there's, you know, Mars is, is a place where, you know, where they, they trap Thetans, you know, or, um, or Venus or something like this. And, um, and then I'd be like, tell me more, tell me more, you know, like, this is so fucking fascinating. I want to know more about this. And he'd stop and he'd go, I can't tell you anymore. You get sick. And I went, oh, man, come on, man. And I just, you know, I couldn't really like pout to my dad. So I was like, all right, I guess that's all I'm going to get. And then I would try to go to my mom later and try to coax it out of her. And she'd just be like, I, I'm not, you know, no, we're not. No, you're just going to get sick. We're not going to talk about it. And so I kept saying, you know, hey, dad, you know, maybe sometime you could just tell me a story and it doesn't have to be real, but it kind of is nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And he was like, yeah, no, it's not really going to happen. And that was as far as it would go. And he would listen to PDC lectures, the Philadelphia doctor course lectures. He loved those things. So he'd listen to them in the living room after work. So I, I grew up hearing Ron's voice and Ron talking about, oh yeah, one time he talked about the Galactic Confederacy. And I said, dad, what's that? Is that like Dayton's or what is that? And he goes, that's eh, kind of half and half. And that was it. That's all I got. You know, no, <laughs> no more explanation than that. And so I grew up with a lot of mystery surrounding the upper levels of Scientology. And I was primed. And it's kind of funny because only sitting here talking to you right now have I really given it this much thought. How primed I was for walking into the church in Santa Barbara when I was in high school and being given, after getting regged and signing up for my courses, one of the staff giving me RJ67, Ron's Journal 67, which is the him teasing the OT3 story that he just discovered and not mm -hmm. telling you what's on it, just telling you there's a great catastrophe and you're going to have to get to OT3 to find out. And that was it, man. I was stuck. I mean, I talk a lot about the personality test I took and stuff, but that tape play and that little thing and all the priming I'd had my entire life, I think was probably just as responsible for me getting sucked into it. Wow, that's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, you, that's that's absolutely right. The lore and the word of mouth like culture that Scientology builds is the strong its strongest asset because, yep. especially with children, because you just you already believe it 
90% by the time you walk in the door. And then they just say, here's Ron. And Ron, you know, <clears throat> he's such like a, uh, you know, obviously people listening will, will understand I'm not talking about from my point of view now. But generally, right. he's such like a captivating speaker. He's sucking you into this vortex of, of, of fascinating stories. And he comes off as like he's just this guy that knows it all. And he's just dropping a little nugget of truth just so you can look at it and see how shiny and wonderful it is. And he's just got this avalanche ready for you. And it's just uh, he's such a good uh, like almost salesman for his own product that you just, you, you just eat it up. If you're in the right state of mind, you just eat it right up and you just run with it. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, that I don't subscribe to this sort of like, um, I, I don't want to say Scientologist bashing because I don't think anyone's really bashing them, but you know, I don't really sort of jump on the train to kind of antagonize people or go after them because they're Scientologists or whatever. I just kind of go, yeah, I get it. I mean, to me, you're just in that mode. And believe me, I remember nothing I, I say to you is going to change that anyway. You know, you kind of got to figure it out yourself, unfortunately. Um, but that's a really interesting. So you got a lot of teasers, a lot of kind of hints that and, and it sounded like you knew more than, you know, a lot of people, though, about Scientology. But I find it interesting that they would give you enough where they've already sort of told you what's happening, but just leave out just enough to leave you hanging, you know. That's right. My dad was very much into the message of this is important. This is vital for all of mankind. Everybody needs to do this. My mom was not that way. And uh, they, were, they were very different. Probably everyone that was really indoctrinated into Scientology that's out now has at least some residual beliefs, you know, no matter how small. Because the thing is, some of Scientology... You know, it's it blurs the line between what's just normal common sense stuff and what's like the sort of quote unquote religious slant to it and whatever. And so, if you totally just say everything that they've ever, that that Lafayette ever said is totally not true, well, now you're saying some weird things. You're saying that you know what communication isn't important. Are you sure? You know, there's all it's very fuzzy. So there's it, it's it's interesting to see where people sort of draw the line in themselves into how much that they, they, I guess you could say buy into or how much they can, you know, observe to be true, let's say in the, in the normal world. Um, I can say for myself, I have, I guess you would say, um, slightly controversial, uh, let's say beliefs that, that align and are, and are certainly stemmed from, uh, Scientology that I still have a really hard time shaking. Um, now, I don't, I don't consider myself an atheist, even though I find that there's no evidence. It's not really about evidence. Let me just put it this way. I don't think that there's any chance that there's any sort of, I'm a guy called God with a beard and a white robe, and I care about everything that you say. I think that's just absolutely not in the cards. But the thing is, there are things that I believe without evidence, and I have no justification for it other than I just think that that's true. And I'm sorry, I can't, I can't defend it. For example, I think that, uh, I think that when we die, there's something more than just everything's black and there was no experience anymore. And I have no, again, I have no 
way to defend that. But I just, it just feel, it just feels like, you know, it's a feeling and I'm sorry for everybody that, that, that doesn't agree, but that's just how I am. And I have a hard time shaking that. Um, so some, you know, things like that. Um, but when it comes to the actual sort of, uh, prescriptions that, that, that Lafayette, I call them Lafayette, that Lafayette. I noticed. <laughs> well, from my point of view, it's like everyone calls him L. Ron Hubbard or Ron. And it's like, why did we do that? Because he wanted us to. Okay. Well, I'm not going to do that. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Uh, so, so, you know, Lafayette's prescriptions, Look, if you think that the norm, the, the non-existent, uh, non-existence condition formula doesn't work, you're not paying attention. It works, right? You, you, you show up somewhere, no one knows who you are, find out what you're supposed to do and then start doing it. It's just common right. sense. Exactly. Right? So people that kind of go like, oh, that's just crazy Sino stuff or you're an apologist. I'm like, yeah, well, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> you know? um, but when it comes to obviously... Uh, you know, uh, auditing and the reactive mind and um, body thetans and this type of stuff. I come at, I, I approach these things from a sort of, well, I don't know what's true. Let's see what he's saying. Let's see if any of that rings true to me. And most of it rings totally ridiculous to me at this point. So I just kind of go, eh, well, that's, that's your theory guy, you know? <laughs> yes, I do. I totally do. On the God thing, I, I just I'll I'll just mention one thing on that because, you know, there's 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 science, there's evidence, there's facts, there's objective facts. I should say, right? Things you can actually sense, feel, touch, experience, perceive, and then there are things that you can think are true, and no one, not a single person on this planet, can prove to you that that's not true. Yeah. You know, you can't prove that there is life following the, the death of your body. But no one anywhere can prove to you that that is not true. All they can say is, well, there is no preponderance of evidence that suggests that that's true. Right. However, there's also zero evidence that it's not true. It's, it's merely an absence of evidence on which they base their idea that that's not true. And, yes. you, go, and you go, okay, but this is something that we're going to call faith. I defend people's right to have faith. Because we have faith in all kinds of things, including the idea that there is more to know and learn, and the idea that we are able to go out and figure it out and discover it and learn it. That is all on faith. How do we know that tomorrow we're filled up? We ain't got no more potential to learn nothing new. We, we've reached the limit, you know? Like, that could happen. We have faith that, no, that's not true. We're going to keep going. We're going we're gonna to be able to keep learning and discovering and, you know. So this is where I, I've come to a fork in the road because I feel like I can, I can attack what you just said and myself because I, because the thing is this, I agree with, <clears throat> excuse me, I agree with everything that people say when they go against this, this point of view. When you say, well, there isn't any evidence that it's not that way. It's like my spider senses are going. I'm like, yeah, but that's not an argument because there's not evidence that, you know, that, that, there's not a, you know, what is it? The teacup floating in space or whatever. Right. There's no right. that that's not there. So, you know, analytic science, you know, atheist types will be watching this and going like, what are they crazy? You know, it's not, a, you have to prove the extraordinary claim. Um, which again, also is defeating what I'm saying. 
but I agree with what you're saying. It's, it is acceptable to me, let's say, to just say, you know what? I, I, I acknowledge that there is no evidence. I, I am willing to maybe even acknowledge there will never be any evidence and maybe I'm totally wrong, but this is what I think is true. I, mm-hmm. I actually, uh, I, 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 I adhere to that. When it comes to God personally, what I think is that there is evidence, and evidence is a weird word because it's really interpretation of observation, so it's it's a bit open. But I believe that there is evidence there, that there is a creator of this universe. I do not personally believe that that has anything directly to do with um, with Christianity or uh uh, Muslim beliefs or any of these things in the direct sense. I don't think that if you somehow could come in contact with this entity, that it would be anything like you thought it was going to be. But I also believe that it's completely unknowable in because we live in the construct, the confines of this, this reality. And I will say that the, you know, like I said, evidence is that which you accept as evidence, really. So I could say, you know, if you talk to some Christians, they may say, well, look at the grace. Look at somebody being just just selflessly giving grace to another. That's evidence of God or that's God's, you know, voice through them or whatever. And, and I go, well, I don't really accept that as evidence, but you may. It's really about what you accept. And one thing that I personally accept as evidence that there's a creator or of some source, uh, of some, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a being that's, you know, thinking about it or anything, but is... When I look at evolution, I, you know, I'm a technical person by trade. When I think about evolution, what I see is, wow, that's a perfect program. That's a program that I would write if I were trying to populate a universe. I would create one tiny little thing that evolves and self-replicates, and those things also further evolve and self-replicate and adapt to the environment and flourish as they do. Myself being timeless and or living for such a long time that a few million, billion years doesn't really affect me too much. I don't care how long evolution takes. doesn't bother me. And so when I sort of look at that and I go, well, if you presuppose that there is something there in the beginning, that seems to make total sense to me. Let's compare that to the, uh, you know, the, the scientific explanation for things, which is, um, there is evolution, and then before that, there wasn't evolution. It's like, okay, but what when there was a bunch of like pond scum and you know, lava ash and all that kind of stuff on this planet, how did we get a single cell organism? And they're like, well, uh, we'll figure that out, we'll figure it out. And it's like, okay, but the thing is, even if you could figure that out. What you're telling me, what science tells you is how something happened, but not why it happened. Like, okay, the most that they could say, like, let's say that they discover that with the right combination of a lightning bolt and a certain temperature and this amount of nitrogen and whatever, whatever, and a gamma ray and all this stuff, suddenly a molecule of dirt, uh, you know, actually they didn't have dirt back then, so let's just say a rock, right, turns into life. It's alive. Yeah, amino we acids. Have to say, okay, why? Right. <laughs> like, why would that happen? Exactly. That's been the key question for me because actually, what you just talked about in terms of the pool with the nitrogen and the lightning bolt—that's actually where they're at. 
They actually yeah. figured that out in the 60s, I think it was, or the 70s. They they did an experiment. They figured it out. They 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 had a pristine pool, you know, water, no life in it of any kind. And they, you know, did the right combination of the right things. And boom, there were amino acids and the, and the building block of life. And then life came and, and they went, okay, we don't know if that's what happened, but we know that we could replicate something that would make this all happen. And they went, okay, we're kind of done with that question for now, or everybody, the pressure came off on answering, how did it spark in the first place? Whether that's how it actually sparked or not, they, they can't say. But that, I, that it's I possible that, that it could have. I, I'm not sure if I'm right here, but I believe that that study was found to be uh, uh, incorrect. We, we should well, look this up. Here's, I, here's I believe that they discovered that, that, that they couldn't reproduce it and that, that it was, there was something wrong with that study. I'm totally willing. I'm wide open. Yeah, I'm wide open to that idea. I was literally told this actually two days ago by an evolutionary biologist who told me, no, this is this. We figured this part out. Now, he wasn't talking from a point of view of he was trying to convince me of something. I just I asked him this question. He said, well, here's where we're at on it. He said, we don't know. We acknowledge we don't know. We acknowledge we have absolutely zero clue as to whether this is actually what happened. But because we, because this happened, because this experiment was done, or these this series of experiments were done, that took the pressure off that. And what we've really been figuring out since then is not was just not just is what Darwin said happened happened because we've gone way beyond that. They've they've developed tons of stuff since Darwin. If you go back and read Darwin, you are not anywhere near modern evolutionary theory. There's all kinds of ramifications and complications and things connected to it. So, so they're not thinking back then. They're not trying to even answer that question at this point. They're just going, well, something happened. We all know we don't know what it was because the fact of the matter is we still don't totally understand evolution, which is not to say that evolution is false. That's not the point. The point is that it's almost like um, studying a car engine or something. Like you, you could guess how it works it's still going to take you down the road. Yeah. Whether you know how it works or not, it's still going to do what it does. That's yeah. kind of, that's kind of my layman statement of how evolution goes. We know it. We know it. This is what's going on. All of what's going on and why it's going on. No, we don't have that yet. <laughs> we're, we're, we're still getting there, but we yeah. know this is basically the model. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. Well, there are a couple, a few things there. So first of all, um, yeah, I, I'm totally willing to accept that, that 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 experiment is reproducible and works for sure. Um, I believe that that one, it, from what I remember, and this is a, a while ago that I that I heard about this. I think it did it wasn't. So we'll have to look that up. But yeah. I'm totally fine if it if it did, and that 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 still doesn't for me affect anything. Like like you said, um, because the thing is, it's the same problem that you have when you look at sort of the origin of the universe, which is. Uh, originally, let's say, you know, humans thought that, um, you know, there was nothing and then, um, and then a certain God came and created it or whatever. And then, and then we found, uh, some scientific evidence that says, oh, it looks like it's older than that and so on. And, and, you know, zipping forward to where we are now, um, you know, some of the leading theories are that, well, there was this big bang. And then before that big bang, we, you know, it was, it was kind of cycling many big bangs and we're all sort of this 
constantly big banging thing in an ocean of other big banging things that are all banging along. And for me, I just go like, oh, that's really interesting and how that's happening. Why is that happening? <laughs> exactly. Well, oh, that's, what, that's what it reminded me of because I wanted to tell you this. You and I actually have, without being in touch in any way or ever having really communicated before now, other than some tweets and some posts, uh, have come to the exact same question. Because the thing I hold on to is, is in terms of a hope, I, I have said many times on my channel, look, I don't have beliefs about this. They're not strong enough to call them beliefs. I have hopes. I, I hope this is how it is, that there is more to life than, than what we get in this 80-year lifespan. I hope there's more. Yeah. But the thing that, that holds me to that idea at all and doesn't make me give it up because of the, you know, the things I know as an atheist and science advocate and stuff is, um, and I should, I should say agnostic, not atheist, is, um, is that question. Why yeah. life? Not, you know, how is super important. That question has to get answered and it hasn't been answered yet. And we all know it hasn't been answered. Just because science hasn't answered it doesn't mean God's the answer. It's, right. this is not a, there's no false dilemma. There's no like, it, 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 it's mine if it's not yours. It doesn't, no, there are an infinity of possible answers. The real kind of question for me is not how, it's why. Why would that happen? Why? You know, and that, yeah. that, no one's got that question. No one. Yeah. And so yeah. for me, those two are big issues. And there's another, there's a third one that I haven't, uh, I, I articulate this a little bit in my book, actually, but I haven't articulated it in video or to any other human yet. Um, I assume you're human, uh, which is, yeah, which is this. It seems to me, I started to think a bit about technology um, and the history of technology as I would, I would, you know, talk to people about exponential growth and, and these types of concepts. And it's, it, it was very interesting to me early on to talk about during, you know, for the first 100,000 years of life uh, as humans, we invented like using a rock and like sharp, maybe sharpening something with rocks. That's what we, yep. we invented. And as time goes on, the amount of time it takes to invent those things gets lower and lower and lower. And now we're inventing things much more complicated than that thousands and thousands of times per day. And, um, and it's just going to continue to go that way. And, and so I started to think about that and there's, to me, that's not mysterious, but I started to realize that invention is an interesting concept because what you're doing is you're creating something in a way you're actually discovering something because the thing about like, Oh, we, we invented a nuclear bomb. Well, not really. You discovered that if you do this and this to something, then this will happen. You're really in a, some weird twisted way. You're actually, it's almost, it's, it's science. You're learning something new about the universe. And the here's sort of the point. It occurs to me that no matter how many questions we ask about this universe, Every time we get an answer, it seems to give us three more questions. That is exactly right. There seems to be an exponential, like a fractal design in knowledge itself in this universe. I, I, people keep feeling, you know, like we're learning more and more, but I feel like we're learning less and less as we go. It's almost like as time goes on, we feel like we know more, but there's just always even more to know. Like... You know, in the beginning, we thought 
that we knew that the earth was created, let's say, in eight, 6,000 years or whatever it was. And then we sort of thought, oh, no, it's older. Now we know. And then someone say, well, but what about this? And it's like, oh, well, I guess there's like the universe is expanding for some reason. And then now there's even more questions. And then it's like, oh, well, then there's this like Big Bang. Okay, now we get it. And then someone goes, well, what, what about these other dimensions? And it's just like, and then now you've got 50 more questions from that. I, so it's not well-formed. I'm not a scientist, but the way my intuition tells me that this is not something that's going to exhaust I believe that you are right. And, um, I, and that comes from learning that all the things, you know, I've talked to a, a lot of scientists now over the last five years. I've talked to biologists, I've talked to engineers, uh, medical doctors, researchers. I mean, I've had, the, I've had the privilege of being able to talk to a wide variety of people in the short period of time I've had since I've left Scientology in the last few years. And every single time I talk to somebody who actually knows what they're talking about, deeply involved in the field, whether it's medical research or engineering or uh, biology or astronomy, uh, astrophysicists. I mean, I've talked to lots of these guys. And um, every single time you get to the top of the field, you find out when you dig deep and talking to them, they finally get to a point where they go, well, here's the thing. We think this might be how these things go. We're pretty sure we do this and this, and this is what happens, and we can predict that. Therefore, we take a best guess as to what this is going to be or how this is going to go or whatever. But we're still in a place where we are totally still figuring everything out. And, you know, a medical researcher pointed out to me, a very, very important guy, actually. He, he's made some pretty important discoveries in, his, in the past on uh, HIV research and very fortunate to know the guy. Um, deep, deep thinker about medicine. And he points out to me one day, he goes, you know, there's never been an Einstein of medicine. I think I mentioned this in a recent podcast. You know, there's never, there's never been that breakthrough universal theory sort of thing with medicine. Medicine is totally, okay, well, put the splint on and see what happens. You know? <laughs> Throw yeah. these chemicals into the brain and see what, and let's just see what happens. You know, best guess. Okay. looks like it's okay. It didn't kill anybody. Good. Put it in a pill and send it out there. You know, like that's kind of how big pharma actually kind of works. You know, <laughs> it didn't kill anybody. Looks like it does something good. Let's market it. You know? Yeah. That's, that's kind of, that's kind of where we're really at. Oh, and yeah, that's, that's you know, a whole just, subject to talk about because, mm -hmm. you know, you're absolutely right. The thing that's that's very striking to me when I sort of, I don't meditate, but let's just say I meditate on it and think about the state of things. The things that are very striking are, you know, um, we're talking, you know, we're on the other side of the world right now and we're talking like we're in the same room. Yep. But you ask me, uh, how is it that if I cut my finger that my body will, will try to heal it. How does it even understand that there's something to do? How, how is it that these cells can communicate with each other and, or exchange information at all to even have any concept that something's happening when they're not, they're not sentient, you know what I mean? Like even just the basic fundamental, like how is this body even operate at all is totally a mystery. Like yep. why is it even, why does it do anything? And, and it's, uh, uh, and then when you get into like medicines, like you said, 
our current approach on things is absolutely barbaric. You, people don't really understand what drugs are, I think. I mean, many people do, but some people don't, which is that a drug is a chemical that we, that we extract or we combine to create. It's just a chemical. And we observe that it does many, many things. And one of the things that it happens to do is a thing that we want it to do. And that's it. And we don't know why. We, we think we may know why in some situations, but we don't know why it is that it's doing this particular thing. A lot of times, um, us as sort of uh, ingesters of the, these drugs, the, we're, we're not necessarily thinking about the fact that it's doing many things to us, one That's of right. which happens this thing. And that, this, is the, this is the origin of side effects. Side effects aren't side effects. They're part of the effects that the thing is doing to you. And you may react to them, you may not. Most people will happen to react to it in this way. And the pharmaceutical companies will try to hone in on that thing right? So if you're taking something that, that suppresses your cough, they're going to try to find the formula that does that the most and does the other things the least. But if you think about that as sort of analogy, it's like you're, it's kind of like somebody says, clean your room. And so you bring out a flamethrower and you burn everything to pieces and then you sweep it out the, the door. That's the first version of the drug. Well, it's clean now. <laughs> um, so let's try to do it with a little less burning, a little less ash. And they just get it down to like, now you're just, you know, the event, the, the latest version is like, you come in with this huge fan and it blows all your stuff out the window. It's like, well, yes, you're cleaner now, but you, you see what I'm saying? Like, they don't know how to actually get in there and, and, and meticulously clean that room. It's just like this, this sort of, uh, uh, bludgeoning, you know, effect. And that's, that's the real reason for me that, um, that's one of two reasons that I still avoid drugs, uh, pharmaceutical drugs, um, uh, to this day. I, I really don't want to take drugs. I, I was diagnosed with PTSD. I don't want to take the drugs. You know, I have a, a, a wicked um, issue with insomnia and nightmares, and I just I won't take. I just don't want to take them because I know at the core that that they're that they're it's like waging war in my body. And one of the effects of that is that the bad things are getting killed. And I just don't want the other effects, you know? Right. Well, I will, for people whose heads are exploding right now, let me clarify a couple things. Uh, one, you know, if you're sick, go see a doctor. I mean, it's not like I'm poo-pooing. I, I don't think either one of us are, but I'm certainly not saying you know, medicine sucks. It's all horrible. And I'll, you know, go alternative therapy and goop.com. I, that, that is no part of my message here right now. I, I, my view on this, and I want to be super clear about it because this ends up being, you know, a nuanced conversation and people don't, don't always get the nuance is, uh, medicine is the best we've got right now. You know, and I'm not saying all Western medicine is the best we've got right now. I'm saying medicine, not alternative medicine, medicine. We do know certain things and we do know how to treat certain things. And some of this stuff has worked for centuries and we're down with that why this stuff work is what we're talking about right now. We don't know why some of this stuff works and not knowing why it doesn't work, doesn't, you know, works or doesn't work doesn't mean that the remedies don't work most of the time. As far as drugs go, I've got, I've been very, uh, not back and forth. I've been, um, well, I guess again, a little nuanced about it because I've, you know, in Scientology, all psych drugs, 
any psychotropic medication of any kind. Black, horrible. How dare you? No way. It's killing kids. It's killing people. This stuff is bad. Big pharma's research methods suck. Well, there's some truth in some of that. But there's also some truth in the fact that I am personally connected with a lot of people who have and or are on various psychiatric medications. And those medications are treating symptoms that they want treated and it's working. So I'm going to be the last person to say down with all medications or down with all drugs, or I'm going to try to dictate to other people what they should or shouldn't do with drugs. I think it's an extremely personal choice. I got no problem with what you just said. You know, you don't want to take them because, and you very clearly laid out your reasons. It's not dogma. You're not coming at it from, well, big pharma is evil. And so therefore I'm boycotting psych drugs here. You know, you got a very different and much more nuanced view of it. Yeah, uh, well, you know. exactly. And, and the thing to point out too, you know, for clarification, yeah, you're right. This is, can be a sensitive uh, area because some people need medication. Uh, and then also, of course, Scientology has caused a lot of issues by pressuring people not to take medication. I'm talking about what I want to do. Now, if I go to a hospital and they tell me, hey, you got this, you need medication, I'm going to take it. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know I mean? When it comes to things that are mental, it's uh, like, for example, let's say depression. Um, I, know my, I know myself enough to understand what level of depression I may have. And I know myself enough to understand when I get to the level where, <clears throat> excuse me, where uh, I need to get into taking an antidepressant. And I know when I, if I don't do that, I know what my life is going to be like and what the balance is and what the trade-off is, et cetera. Um, so look, if you're depressed and you're depressed enough to be talking to a doctor and they're saying, Hey, try this, you should probably try it. That's what I think. Um, and see how it goes for you and, and, and talk with your doctor. If you're talking about physical things like, you know, uh, getting morphine cause you broke your whatever, yeah, do it. I mean, don't be crazy. You know, don't suffer through the pain just because you think it's a, whatever. You know, I take antibiotics. I'll take whatever. But do I want to be taking those or would I rather that we had a, a technology that would just solve the problem? I would much rather not be doing drugs. You know, I would much yeah. rather if you've got cancer, they just hold up a crystal in front of your face and all of a sudden all of your cells and your entire body are not cancerous. That's it. You know, I would I would love that. And so that's the duty of science is to keep keep working towards that type of Star Trek, you know, solution. And I'm just pointing out that we're not even close. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We're totally on the same page on that. Yeah. Um, you know, I and and this is actually kind of interesting because um, because we are so much on the same page on it, because I have certainly had uh, I, I've been to a counselor a couple of times. I've not taken any medications uh, in the last five years in terms of any psychiatric medications or psychotropics. Not, I've never even gone to a psychiatrist to you know, have the possibility of having drugs uh, prescribed to me. Uh, I have certainly had depressive episodes. I have certainly experienced PTSD symptoms. Um, I mean, to this day, you know, nightmares are still a thing. Weird, odd dreams and stuff. And I don't know how it could possibly be any other way. I spent 40, you know, 42 years of my life in a destructive cult, you know, and uh, 17 of those years in an extremely abusive environment. Uh, so, 
you know, how do you not, you know, how, how do you expect all those, all that kind of stuff to just go away after a couple of years? It doesn't really work that way. But yeah, I, exactly. I, I feel that I would probably be just as hesitant as you are when, if somebody did say, well, here's your prescription for, you know, Adderall or, or uh, Zoloft or Prozac or whatever, you know, whatever, blah, 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 blah. Uh, it might be, I might go, hmm, I'm going to have to really go give this some very serious thought, you know, yeah. not because of the Scientology prescriptions about it or uh, this, you know, the fear mongering they do about psychiatry. It's because I know a little bit more probably than the average bear about what goes on behind the scenes. And some of that concerns me, you know? Yeah. Well, for me, it's kind of interesting because uh, the reason that I feel this way actually has nothing to do with Scientology. Personally, I, I did all of my drugs and um, crazy amount of drugs that I did in my life, which I've done nearly every drug that is exists, at least at that time. I mean, you name it. But um, You mean you're not qualified for the Sea Org anymore? Oh, no. <laughs> Hundreds of times over. I've done PCP. I've done LSD. I've sold LSD. I was, we were doing, you know, the most LSD I did was 22 hits at uh, a rainbow gathering at once. I've did. I've done LSD for weeks straight at the ranch. By the way, I, I've been sec checked on LSD. I've had a like, I, dude. I, I mean, you got to watch some of those other videos. <laughs> I guess so. You did LSD at the ranch. I was asked the question, have you ever d taken LSD while I was on LSD at the ranch? <laughs> I'm sorry. I just find that really disgusting. I'm horrified that, that, that teens would, would be able to do that. And at the same time, I just, I, I, I can't believe that. I, I can totally believe that that happened. It's, so, it's a bit of weird yeah. life. But, but, but my point here is this. Yeah. The reason that I am kind of trying to avoid uh, unnecessarily, uh, dosing myself with drugs is because I've done all of those drugs. I feel like, Oh, I've had enough, you know, if it's some light thing, I'm not really, I'm hesitant to get to, to, to dive into chemicals. That's really the reason why is because I just feel like I've, um, my liver and my organs and my brain is just sick of it. So that's yeah. really what it's not it's not like a philosophical thing i think if you got a problem you got to solve it you know because you got to have a happy life you can't be mr depressed just because you don't want to have a dry mouth you know what i mean <laughs> yeah exactly well exactly and also the same thing like i mean that extends out for me it almost becomes you know a, a point of a, 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 of law enforcement when you have uh what is it the the jehovah's witnesses refuse the blood transfusions or you know the the these some of these you know, people get so down with their Christian values or beliefs that uh, there's a certain sex of this stuff. It's not broad. I'm not talking broadly about Christianity now, but some of these extremist groups get into no blood transfusions, no drugs, no, you know, no medicine, no hospitals. And, and there are people, I mean, I just saw a story two days ago of a couple of parents who were sentenced to long prison terms because they did not get their daughter the proper medical care. So, uh, you know, so obviously get, get medical care, you know, um, but what I'm interested in here, what, what occurred to me while we're sitting here talking about this is how, you know, what we're talking about is sort of like dealing with the effects of growing up in Scientology, this belief system enforced on our lives, and the effects that it created in the real world. 
you being sent to the ranch, me going into the Sea Org, I mean, both highly abusive environments, different, but very similar in that there was a lot of physical abuse, there's a lot of mental, psychological, emotional abuse. Um, you know, you're not in control the entire time. You're being told that this is an amazing, wonderful, beautiful experience if you would only cooperate. And yet, it's one of the most horrifying experiences you could possibly have as a human being short of becoming a prisoner of war and fucking North Korea or something. So it's a pretty bad experience. I mean, it's really hard to describe. I got to write my book on the RPF so people can actually get what that thing is really like because it's impossible to, to communicate in a couple. If I talked for an hour straight about it, you still wouldn't get it. You know, it's like, yeah. it's, it's really bad. Yeah. So we are both kind of like uh, recovering from that. And yeah. And it's interesting how we've come to some similar conclusions and some, you know, same kind of ideas about some of this stuff. Yeah, well, I think for myself, I got into a technical field. I'm currently the uh, chief technology officer at the largest Asia-based visual effects company. So that's kind of a mouthful. But basically, um, I'm the the top technical, basically technical executive at a company with about uh, a thousand people. We've got six cities in three countries. And um, so I, I basically uh, lead a team of a, a bit, a little bit under a hundred people in two languages, Chinese and English, and solve all the technical problems, do everything that, that, that they need. Um, and so the way that I got there was through you know, my, my path career-wise has been systems administration, Linux, networking, sys, uh, systems architecture. Um, and that's a whole fun story of all the crazy stuff that, you know, all the huge projects I've done and, and the kind of the crash courses that I, you know, I taught myself, totally self-taught. You know, my education is uh, eighth grade. So I have an eighth grade education and um, I, I just push myself to learn. So the point is, I think about things in a technical way. I think about things as an engineer. And, um, and so, and because you're, you know, a critical thinker, you're, you're a hyper analytical type of guy, which I know several people that are like that. We often intersect me and these people. We often intersect about many things because, um, not to say that we're right, but just we have similar ways of thinking about let's get clarity let's get to the smallest you know node the smallest module and figure out what we're looking at and we get you know maybe nerdy with it we get a little too far into it and we come up with some similar conclusions so um it's very cool as far as recovery goes i've had a just such a long and strange life that um and Scientology was so intertwined with my whole experience that it's difficult to say if I would ever actually recover. But by the same token, I don't feel weighed down by Scientology specifically each day. I do feel, I feel like somebody covered in ash from a fire at all times in my life. Like it's just this crazy thing has happened to me that's never fully gone. I do have a black cloud around me sometimes more than others, but um, but I, I've actually had it for so long now that it's just part of me at this point. And, you know, people have told me to get counseling and tr try this, try that. But um, I think that I, I both 
I, I both have little confidence that I would actually be able to drop all of it. And I have a, also not, not that much confidence or, or desire to necessarily do that. I, I think that in a way is you, if you can harness the energy that there's energy there. I don't know if that really makes sense, but you know, it's kind of like these, these things happen to me. I want to use that for something rather than disband it and rather than let it weigh me down. And I don't even know if that's a real option, but that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. You, what, what is, you know, what kind of goals do you have on that? Where, where, what do you look at as a, as a well lived happy life for yourself? Well, I can say that, um, the way that I look at goals in my life has has um, been pretty much the same. I I I I always have the sort of same mechanism for trying to accomplish my goals. It doesn't always work, but it's generally the same approach. Which is, I'll get this idea in my mind and I'll start to work towards that, and it it never goes away. It's like a like instruction from a mothership is how I describe it. It's like I just now I have this thing with me at all times, and I never stop, even when I'm not directly thinking about it. I'm passively thinking about it. I just keep it with me. Um, so those have evolved this as far as what I was interested in. Um, when I was young, it was to have a normal life. And then when I was at the ranch, it was to leave the ranch. And then, um, when I was on the streets, it was to kill myself with drugs and, you know, the spiral of death. It very, you know, it was just, I was, I mean, overdosed several times. I, I committed, tried to commit suicide multiple times. I, I was just in this path of, of not caring about anything because caring was too painful and I just wanted to, to end. And it, I didn't end, you know, I was still there. And so I slowly, I'm, 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 quanti- you know, I'm, I'm sticking seven years into two sentences. So excuse me if it sounds abrupt, but then I changed my focus to, I want to do something. And then it was, I want to do computers and doing computers uh, lasted for about, um, maybe let's say 10 years of keeping that same focus on the same goal. And then it became, I want to travel. And so then I started traveling and then it was, I want to have financial security on some level. Like I don't want to think about a bill at a coffee shop, you know? And, and so I'm sort of babbling, but so then it was that. And then more recently, in 2012, I came to China, but um, on business. And at that time in my life, I wasn't addicted to technology anymore. I, I had enough money where I was relatively okay and everything like that. And so then I shifted to this newer goal of mine, which is to become a totally fluent Chinese speaker who knows everything about China and experiences and loves China in every way. And so uh, that has been my most recent goal. And um, I tried to get into a school to learn Mandarin or to get a job for a year so that I could work with Chinese people. And um, I ended up getting the job first. And I've been at that company now for four years. And I'm leaving that company literally in about three weeks by my own choice so that I can go now and learn Chinese. And so I'm living that dream, um, that goal. 
but that's part of an overall goal, I, I think, which is to um, be able to be somebody that can help other people, probably through videos and or media and or, you know, books in China and also a bit in America as well, but in China to explore and see this world that we're in and, and just this great exchange of ideas. So that's kind of my, what I want on the horizon. Awesome, man. I mean, cause you're, cause you survived some really serious bullshit, you know, and you're now making, uh, you know, uh, a perfect success of yourself on that. And by success, I mean, you're doing exactly what you want to be doing. I don't yeah, look at success by that measure, measure. By, you know, number by yeah. bills and stuff. I look at it from, are you happy? Are you doing what you want to do? Exactly. By that measure, you know, I have a great life. You know, I live with my two cats and my wonderful girlfriend. I live in China. Um, I've had a, a, a you know, a, a career that I've worked very hard to build, but that's not my my passion. So I'm essentially setting that aside and I'm going to do what I want to do, what I really want to do. If you said to me, you know, there's something about myself that since I was homeless for so long and I, I survived all that and I'm, let's say, normal-ish now, I have very little patience to not be doing what I want to do. So there's never a time when you see me and you say, hey, what can I get? Uh, this is kind of unfortunate. Hey, what can I get you for your birthday? Nothing. I already have everything that I, that I want. Because if I didn't have it, I would have already gotten it. You know, it's kind of annoying right. to people, unfortunately. But it's also, is there something you'd rather be doing now than what you're doing? And the answer is no. No, I, I, this is, I'm doing exactly what I want to do. Because I feel like I could have died many times. And, and you know what? You never know when life's going to just suddenly be over. And um, I, if there is an afterlife... Um, or, or even a brief period when your brain's dying or whatever, when you're thinking about your life, I want to look back on it and I want to think about all the stuff that happened, all the, all the things that I said and did. And I want to be satisfied and, and happy with the way I live my life. I don't want to look back on myself and think about, wow, I was such a petty dude, you know, or, or I was always upset about the dumbest things or, um, you know, I always wanted to do that. I always wanted to be, I'm just making this up. I don't always wanted to be a guitarist. Why didn't I just do it? You know, I don't want that feeling. I just don't want it. And, and, and maybe that's just a ridiculous thing. Maybe there is none of that, that, that awareness, but it's, it's something that I'm not afraid of, but I'm really conscious of. I, I want to be able to look back on my life and say, I went through all that stuff and then I did something with that opportunity that I had after it. I didn't just as we would say in the old, you know, Scientology terms, I didn't just motivate off of it. You know, I didn't just like, Oh, now the world is all my enemy and I'm just going to all be like a Mr. Negative Nelly over here. Uh, you know, the pain is real, but I want to do something. I want to do things that I'm like, Hey, you know, in the end that life was a good life. Exactly. I could not agree with you more. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I'm serious, man. It's funny. Uh, I mean, I'm doing exactly, precisely what I want to be doing. I'm just not doing it on the scale I want to be doing it. Right. But, you know, I'm not reaching enough people. I, I, want, to, I want to reach more people because I, I know what I'm saying and doing is helping people. Uh, I mean, I know that. I get inundated with communication all the time about how helpful and useful and, 
And, uh, you know, and I've gotten people out of cults. I mean, I've, I've done that work. So I just want to do more and more and more of that. It's, you know, but what I'm doing is, yeah, it's exactly right. I think there's also, I don't know, I want to ask you about this. For me, after being in such a controlling environment for so many years, having had that experience, I'll say, where, where you really are not in control of what's going on. You know, you're not in control of your environment. You're not in control of your body even. Um, you know, you got to eat when they say to eat. You got to do this when you, they say to do that. Uh, this is the schedule. This is the time. This is the this. This is the that. No, you can't think those thoughts. Those are bad thoughts. You, better, you know, you, you, you shouldn't be doing that to that level of control. You, know, you come out of something like that. You just kind of go corporate nine to five, really? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm not, no. You know, I I, I know I got skills. I can go do that. But, and I don't mean to make it sound like it's easy. I mean, I know there's a lot of work. There's a learning curve. There's all this stuff, you know, you got to figure out what the profession, all that. But I just kind of go, yeah, I don't know that I could deal with somebody telling me what to do all day again. I don't know that I could, you know. Yeah, I agree. Um, I was always uh, kind of... um, I, I guess you could say rebellious, but that certainly doesn't help when you come from that world of like, well, I've just been, um, con- like you said, controlled for so long. And then you look at the sort of, let's call it corporate world and you go, uh, the daily, you know, grind. Uh, and, and, you know, when I was getting off the streets, I was grinding like crazy. I mean, I got, job at Wendy's. I was making French fries. You know what I mean? It was, it was people are yelling at me and, and all that stuff. Um, and I had, I've had many quote unquote, you know, normal types of jobs. And there is a way out of that structure that is not scary. Actually, it just takes longer. And the way out for me is you build it up. You go, you, you go, hey, I'm at Wendy's now and I'm making six bucks an hour and I'm getting yelled at and this sucks. And I, you know, whatever, I don't like this. How can I change it? Start by getting a better job. Focus on that. Stay at Wendy's, get a better one. Go get that better one and then repeat that and just get up so you start to build your skill. You start to build your comfort level. You get that experience under your belt so you've had the, the, the sort of nine to five stuff going on and then you develop what your skills are, what you want to be doing and then as soon as you start doing what you love, in my experience, you're going to be more and more in a situation where you start to have this option available to you of like, oh, I could kind of do this myself. You know, like I, I could make, I could maybe do my own company or I could, you know, do a startup or even on the, uh, even on the side, I could start doing a, like a video channel about it, doing tutorials about it or talking about it or whatever it is, you can slowly start to morph that into something where you're more independent and then, um, and then kind of go from there. So for myself, um, I'm leaving my, my job, um, soon that's technically a nine to six, but, um, normally because, you know, at this sort of level of the organization, I work seven days a week. I'm working all the time forever. There's no stopping, you know, people are, there's million dollar questions going on with the company. You can't just say, Oh, sorry, it's Saturday night. I'm not going to answer your email CEO. So, it's always working. So um, uh, what I'm going to be shifting from it, it, it to is from that to basically going back on like a retainer situation where, uh, you know, various companies will pay me to do their support and that kind of stuff, but it won't be on set hours. So it'll be when they need help slash I'll pitch in here and there and I'll be focusing on 
um, finishing this book, starting to do more videos, getting things set up, uh, finding the new school, moving to the new apartment, all this kind of stuff, rearranging my, my life. But I want to be doing something not, not really like what you're doing. Um, because I think that you're, first of all, you've already cornered the market on that because (laughs) you're extremely good at the, the modular analysis of the entire subject because Scientology is and cults and, and, um, beliefs are such a huge subject. You cannot just talk about it for a couple hours. You got to break it down. And you're really, really good at that. What I, what I think I can offer to this community and, you know, to the world, I think is, is, um, you know, my experience and how I think about things and, and, um, putting out there my thought patterns so that people can pick, pick them apart and find something useful, useful for themselves and and that type of thing. And, um, I think that that's going to be a much more satisfying experience for me than doing something that, uh, I, you know, that I'm already, an expert in, in the, at least in the, the, the particular angle of it tech work that I do. I'm not, there's not a lot of gain for me personally, as far as satisfaction and, um, you know, learning. And I think doing this other thing is going to be a lot of learning. You know, I, I taught myself in design and I taught myself a premiere. I'm teaching myself premiere and after effects. I'm just doing it myself. You know, it's a, it, these are, these are fun. It's hard and it's fun. And you're learning all this, this crazy stuff. I don't get to do that at work. You know, I'm doing stuff that I've been doing for 10 years plus at work, 12 years, you know, so, um, I'm rambling, but yeah, no, I, I, I'm totally down. I, and you're doing the same curve now I did when I, when I got out, taught myself premiere and yeah, it was premiere. It was, uh, it was, um, premiere elements. And then it was Premiere Pro and the, and After Effects because I was like, I got to do this video showing the Scientology organizational structure. There's no way I can do this without graphics. There's just yeah. no way. So I have to recreate this entire org board. Well, I guess I better learn some graphics. Okay, hi After Effects. I guess I'm going to learn you now. You know, yeah. and, uh, yeah. and I you know I come from a base of having known some Photoshop and. And that was actually Photoshop and a little bit of InDesign because I did some Scientology magazine layouts and, and put together all, again, all learned on my own while I was out in the field in Twin Cities, you know, trying to figure this stuff out. And we had to make marketing materials. And it's like, well, I need a threefold flyer. Guess I better figure out how to make one. And I yeah. think, you know, if there's something constructive that came out of my Sea Org years, and you weren't in the Sea Org, but I mean, for me, I'll speak to, to this, that this make it go right attitude. I was this, in the sewer. Oh yeah, you were in the sewer for a couple months. That's right. <laughs> That's right. But this, you know, this you talked to, you tell you mentioned earlier these little bits of truth, uh, you know, throughout the world of Scientology, and it's true there are, and most of it's common sense stuff. But some of these principles get into your blood or get into your bones, and then it's just kind of who you are. And the yeah. make it go right attitude, the I don't know what I'm doing, but there is a way to figure this out. I will figure this out. And I will get this thing done because it needs to get done. Whatever it is you're talking about, whether it's building a stage, writing a computer program, getting something, getting somebody 3,000 miles away to get something done because you're going to get killed if they don't. You know, all the, these kinds of things. You just figure that, you just, you're, okay, well, I got to figure it out. And I think part of the thing that you could walk away constructively with that for me, is not this, okay, I'm this gung-ho, make it go right, I'm going gonna, 
uh, you know, no matter what challenge you give me, I'm going to overcome it. Because that's just bullshit. We all have our limits. It's the idea that you're capable, that there, one, that it's the idea that there is a way to do something as opposed to throw your hands up and, oh, it's just impossible. There's nothing that can be done. That idea. And then two, the idea that you actually do have enough in you to be able to figure it out. You know? Yeah, I agree. And uh, that, that's, that's definitely a cultural aspect of uh, a certain, of mostly of the Sea Org, but also of, uh, to a lesser degree, staff and public. But, um, you know, you can get that anywhere. I mean, you know, so there's some, some of the Chinese guys that have worked, uh, that work for me at work. I've been able to give some of that to them and I don't do it using Scientology. You know, I just, <laughs> you do don't, yeah. you don't quote Lafayette at them. What's the matter with you? <laughs> the way out is the way through. Do you not understand? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I, it, you, you can get that by adopting the right mindset and observing through situations where you feel like, Oh, I just, there's no way to do that. And someone else comes along and goes, no, there is. And they just keep, doing that no so you just do this and you start to get this rhythm going of like oh you know i'm talking about computers here mostly but you know that's that's my what i know about but it's you know the problem the thinking that oh there just isn't a solution to that it doesn't work with computers because there is a solution there's a way to do it how much time do you want to invest because there's a way to do it i promise you oh you want a, a program that you know opens up your skype and drags it across the screen and then you know, add some people and types to them and then opens up notepad and copies this to that. And then, you know, downloads this. Yeah. Well, for sure. We can make an app that does that. No problem. How much time do you want to invest in it? You know, <laughs> that's but right. You somebody and they say, Oh, that you can't do that because of this and you can't do it because of that. You start to go like, no, you can, you can. And as you show people that more and more, they, it starts to break through that concept for them of like, Oh, I get it. I can really do almost anything that I'm actually, you know, not barred from doing like for example i'm not going to go and be like an astronaut I, i'm this is not going to happen for me but um if i were thinking oh um you know i would really like to go own a you know shop somewhere and everyone can tell me that i can't do it but uh, no i can i can do that you know it's just a matter of understanding no i can do it um it'll be hard how much time do i want to spend how much money do i want to spend you know that's right um, but the, the sort of snap and pop, you know, of the Sea Org, this, the sort of uh, uh, get it done. I mean, that, I think that ultimately stems from the military uh, that, you know, but um, it, it's, it's a very useful tool. And I think you're, you're right. That's one thing that you could certainly take away from, from that experience and, and, and use it again. It's very generic, you know? Yeah, exactly. One thing I found is that um, anything that happens in Scientology, I mean, almost anything that happens uh, I, I can't think of anything right now. Uh, I mean, solo auditing maybe is a little bit very, very unique to Scientology. But in terms of the assets, in terms of the things you walk away, the pros of what you walk away from Scientology with, I, I, I think you're absolutely right that uh, there's other ways of accomplishing those things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I look at it because of the fact that, you know, that's our common background. So that's probably where we get that idea from, you know. Yeah, no, for and, sure. And also coming to learn that, um, that not everybody gets that. You right. know, there are, they, I've run into too many people than I, than I am comfortable with uh, who just give up. Just, nope, uh, can't be done. Uh, this, that, this reason, that reason, the other reason, you know, or turn it on me 
well, you know, you're this, you're that, and and I'm not, so therefore I can't. And I'm always, mm, I I think more highly of you than I think you do. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, and that, that's actually a little bit of fuel for why. Uh, and I'm not just trying to plug my book over and over, but that's one of the reasons that I want to write my book that I'm, I'm almost done with now is I want people to understand that giving up is just as good as it sounds because I, you know, I had a, I had a crazy life. I, I was sent to this, this boarding school, this, uh, Scientology ranch, you know, twice. The first one was a lot more physically abusive and traumatic. The second one was a lot more mentally abusive and um, the sort of war of attrition that they, they wage on you where you just are just there forever being punished until you get with the program, this type of thing. Um, I was disowned by, you know, disconnected from my entire family I was on the streets for seven years, sleeping under bridges, sleeping in dumpsters, you know, drunk the entire time on drugs. I've done, you know, smoked crack and PCP and I've shot up enough heroin to kill many horses and I've OD'd, I've, I've died and had people breathing for me while the ambulance was called for what the, the girl described as for 10 minutes. I've been jumped. I've been beaten up. I have a scar on my head that you probably can't see in the video, but this bump here, that's from somebody hitting me in the head with a, with a piece of rebar. I, I've been, um, you know, people pulled knives on me. I've been shot at with the intention of killing me. I've been in, um, I was in a gang. I've been in jail several times. I have been at the absolute, what I consider the absolute bottom of reality, wandering around on Central Avenue in Albuquerque, you know, high on crack, looking for shiny things that I can maybe sell for another bag. And um, I have done, you know, just an unimaginable amount of crazy things like that. And I continued to go on and I tried. And I eventually, with no social security card, not knowing my social security number, no birth certificate, no ID, no passport, no family to vouch for me, no friends with any money, no support system, no like, you know, no, no cultural support, being totally different, thinking totally different mentally than everybody else, feeling like a complete loser, nowhere to live, no clothes, no hope. No one in the world at that time cared that I even existed. I was able to very slowly, through pressure and trying and not giving up, turn that into the life that I have now. Like today, as I talk to you, I've been to um, around 35 countries. I've traveled a lot of places. I've really enjoyed that. I've, you know, I'm an executive now. I'm, I'm writing a book. I've got um, investments and I, I have enough money now where I'm not, you know, rich, but I can take time off of work and do what I want to do and not have to worry about the bills too much, um, for, for some time, you know, and I, and I feel, um, satisfied. I, I don't take drugs anymore. I very rarely drink. Um, and I have an outlook with life where I've got a lot of stuff in the sort of black mirror of my, my history that I, that I 
you know, slowly am confronting and looking at and everything like that. But, um, I wouldn't say that I'm fine, but I, I have made it in the sense that I've made it as far as I've wanted to go. And the message for there, there really is giving up will just get you exactly what it sounds like it's going to get you. You just get nothing. You know, you want to work, you know, when I was at Wendy's, I worked there for about five months and it was horrible. And I remember, you know, it's all these little things in life. I remember meeting a girl there and she was the, the cash, she worked the cash register and she had been there for seven years. And just, just finding out, out that piece of information was like, all right, I got to get out of here. I got to get to the next place. Just little steps along the way where you just don't give up. You don't become comfortable doing something that you don't want to do. You just don't stop. Exactly. Wow, man. That's a little hard to respond to all that. <laughs> that is, uh, that is <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a mind-blowing story. The fact that you have all your teeth right now, or at least it I, looks like you do. I don't. I don't. It's interesting that you brought that up. Okay. You're the only person that's mentioned that. You're very, uh, you're, you're very, <laughs> you know that somebody that's lived this life would not have so many teeth. So I'm going to, I'm going to rock your world now. Okay. You ready for this? So yeah. this is the very back tooth that I have up here. Am I, okay. From here to here is a bridge. Wow. 11 span bridge. Okay. Wow. I actually, have, I actually have a tooth here and then I've got like a half, you know, half a tooth here and then one in the back. This is all fake teeth. So you're absolutely right. It'd be, I have not, I don't have front teeth. I mean, if this thing comes out, I look like a horrible monster. Right. Yeah. And that's I mean, the meth and the, the life on the streets. I did a lot of methamphetamines and a lot of heroin and a lot of drinking. And obviously when you're living on the streets, the essential item to bring is not your, you know, toothbrush, your dental floss and your, uh, toothpaste and your, you know, water gun and your, you know, that's not what you're concerned about when you're living a life on the streets. So you're absolutely right. That's, that's really funny that you brought that up. <laughs> I just, I just looked at your perfectly straight teeth and I was like, nah, no way, man. <laughs> that's dental work. That's absolutely dental work. Uh, which is very good dental work, by the way. Um, so how, okay, so let's talk about this for a minute because this is, this is a pretty deep dive here and I'm, I'm actually really curious um, because it's easy to, like you said, it's, it's not only like it, you get the result when you give up that you expect, but it's, it, it is easy. I mean, it's not, there's no effort involved. You know, it's, it's living, it's continuing, it's trying, it's striving. That, that is the hard part. How did you, did you know anybody else who made it out? In terms of other people you were around? Um, I can't imagine well, you didn't see some death in all of that. Well, I, yeah, a lot of my friends died. If by make it out, you're talking about the homeless world. Yes. Um, I'm just going to be honest. No, I don't know anybody that is actually, let's say, fine now. Um, there's uh, several of my friends have died. I talk about this in the book as well, but one of my best friends on the streets died on me. Like we were uh, leg to leg on a couch when he died uh, from heroin. And um, that was one of the big things that happened uh, that slowly started to, you know, shift how I was thinking about things. Um, 
people continued to die. Um, about uh, maybe four months ago, I heard about another one of my best friends from those days on the streets that we, tra- that we traveled together. He also died from complications due to, to heroin. Um, so the short answer is uh, it's very rare that somebody would live, first of all, would live the kind of life on the streets that I had. Even when I was on the streets, there were many people that were on the streets that weren't weren't at that level of, you know, let's say homelessness. There were definitely some. But those people, the the some that were right there with me, sleeping in the dirt, needle hanging out of the vein, just totally gone. Um, I don't know of any that made it at all. And how did you deal with the withdrawal? How did you deal with, you know, going the transition from heroin addiction and meth addiction, which are extremely powerful drugs, to, okay, I'm going to hold down a job now. Like there's, there's obviously steps in between there. And yeah. I'm, I am more than a little curious how you walk those steps. Right. So um, contrary to Scientology's attack video on me, uh, I was not doing drugs before I went to the ranch. I started doing drugs at the ranch. Okay. Um, And that's a whole nother story. But long story short, we were able to get drugs eventually at the ranch. And I started the first uh, drug that I did was was weed. And um, so I smoked an entire joint by myself, as you do when you don't know what to do. (laughs) (laughs) Was very high. Uh, um, Started with weed and alcohol, and then a girl uh, brought some meth, and so we started with a bit of meth, and then uh, we were able to start getting LSD, and that became my real first true love when it came to drugs. That was my first, I guess you call it addiction, even though it wasn't like a physical addiction, and so we were um, we were tripping uh, at first when we could, and then it became all the time. And when I say all the time, I mean every single day, all day and all night. So we and were this, is, this is 14 to 17 years old. By this time I was around 16 and a half. Yeah. Okay. Well, 17. Yeah. Clearly a grown adult capable of, you know, all your own. Totally, life yeah, yeah. Totally appropriate. Right. So, um, at that time I was living in a barn with one other guy and me and him were doing this acid obviously it wasn't condoned so we had to be secretive which led to weird trips i'm sure you can imagine um so the idea then was we or the 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 procedure then was we would you know wake up and we would take some acid immediately so probably we would do maybe uh three hits three four hits and then during the day when we would the peak I don't know if you've done LSD, but basically you 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 do this very long, uh, very intense peak, and then the rest of the trip is just kind of the slow climb downwards. And so what okay. we would do is after the peak, when it starts to start, you start coming down. Then we would do what we called we would bump it. I don't know what if there's really like a word for it, but we would take like one more, keep that peak going. So we try to always be peaking. So anyway, um, I did that for a long time, and then I um, and then. I went home and I, I ran away and um, me and that same guy now outside of the ranch, we had to make money. We were living out of his car 
Um, and he happened to know a person that was selling vials of acid. So it's about 105, 110 hits. We're getting them for 90 bucks. And so we were selling, our intention was to sell the acid to try to make money for, you know, food and gas and whatever. Um, but you know, acid's not like, it's not a party drug. So it's actually pretty hard to sell. So we were selling just enough basically to cover another vial and then we'd do the rest ourselves the entire time. So we were just constantly on acid. And we, at that time, he, we were connected with a, a girl who was a big meth head and she was giving us high grade weed. This is in Washington, high, giving us high grade weed and we would sell her high grade weed and, um, and then she would give us meth for free. So, um, so we were doing, I was starting to mix meth and, and acid quite a bit. Weed wasn't ever really my thing, but you know, it's always sort of, was always mixed into everything. And, um, um, so basically what happened is LSD, um, like with methamphetamines, uh, so much to explain. Basically with meth, if you stay up for a long time, you get these things called shadow creepers. That's what we call them which is basically like these phantom hallucinations that are dark, that are coming at your peripheral. And you also get into paranoia and just more and more insane, essentially. And the thing is, when you mix that with LSD, um, LSD will imprint its effects on you. So if I, for example, if I took 25 hits of acid right now, having not done it in a long time, I would be gone for probably two, three days, totally peaking gone. Okay. And he, but here's the real, the point of it. When I finally came down from that and was no longer on LSD, the mindset that I got into during that trip would in a way be permeated. I would still have that mindset for quite a long time. So the point is when you are doing that type of thing, but you're mixing it with speed and you're getting this hor horrible shadow creepers and this paranoia and whatever, the LSD permeates that in your brain. So now, even though you're not on any drugs, for many days, you're having that horrible experience. So that's kind of hard to articulate that. But so I, anyway, I think you did a pretty good job. Yeah. So LSD, I had to stop. I had to start stepping away from LSD because it had taken on the flavor of these bad, <clears throat> these bad trips I was getting because of speed. So in other words, even if I stopped doing the speed and I just take one single hit of LSD, part of that trip would be bad, even though I was in a fine mood and everything. So I, so I slowly stopped doing that and I switched over to LSD to, to speed and speed. Um, long story short, I did that for a long time. And then I got to the situation where I was blacked out and then I woke up in a basement with actually with those acid dealers who we didn't really know them very well, but I was there somehow. And I was in this deep, crazy mental state where I thought that they were working for Scientology and that they were trying to process me and that they were like doing a new secretive auditing, uh, like experiment on me or like they were, you know, like it's hard. I, 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 I spell it out in the book, but kind of like they would say, Hey, how's it going? And I would be thinking to myself, I'm, I'm, I'm answering him like going well. And I'm thinking to myself, Okay, so this is the part where he's establishing ARC. You know, he's right. up the framework, so he's going to start to do this sec check on me. I mean, it was just totally—I absolutely believed it. I was just gone, and um, I got out of that, and I and we ran out 
And I kind of looked at back at that speed and I was like, there's no way I can keep doing that. At least not for now. I need to take a break from that. And I'm, I'm kind of condensing a lot of this. Then eventually I got into um, heroin and heroin is tough because the thing about speed is it keeps you up. And so eventually you have to stop doing it because you will just pass out. I mean, if you don't, you know, you start to be able to gauge yourself and realize, okay, after like two, three days of staying up, I'm going to go crash out. And then you sleep for like, you know, a couple of days. Um, but the thing about heroin is it doesn't do that to you. So you can just keep doing it every day. You know, there's never, there's no like hard stop. So you just keep doing it. And so I got really addicted to heroin. Um, and I did, a, I did a lot of heroin in, in uh, Washington and uh, Oregon and California and uh, Utah. And um, uh, so you were doing quite a bit of traveling as well. Yeah, hitchhiking around and everything. And, and a lot in Albuquerque. And I OD'd on heroin. Um, and then I OD'd again the, the same week. Uh, the first time I, um, I'm sorry, not the same week I OD'd and then I got sent to jail. And then after I got out within a week, I OD'd again. Um, and it wasn't the, it wasn't the ODing that made me kind of want to stop doing it. There was, it was a couple of things. The, The minor factor was that heroin is a huge euphoria. You shoot it up even a $5 worth. And you are just like, why did I never do this before? Oh, but that aspect of it doesn't last forever. It lasts a little while. And then you turn into the situation where when you're not on heroin, you feel horrible. And then you do heroin and then you just feel normal. You don't yeah. feel anymore. And that's a big problem. And that's, that's um, so when you're junkie on the streets like, like I was, that what they would call it is just get well. So they just, they just get some spare, some change up, buy some heroin, shoot it up, and then go try to spare change to get heroin to get high because that first one is normal again. And so I got to that level a few times and I, you know, I was obviously really familiar with this whole life and everything. I was, I was what, what we would call strung out addicted. And, um, I OD'd a few times and I didn't, didn't phase me. And then, like I said, my friend spit, um, died. And then, um, you know, another person that was close to me also died. And that plus the sort of kind of, you know, "Ah, this is not really getting me like that euphoria anymore. I just took a step back. Okay. And it was like about, about a week and like a junkie can go, if you're a hardcore junkie, you have a problem that day if you don't do dope. And, um, I was aware of that and I've been through withdrawals and everything before I've been on methadone and all that stuff. But, um, there was something about what had happened where I just said, you know what? I don't care about the withdrawal. It's only going to be like, I'm just going to not do it today. And then it was like, all right, I'm just going to do one more day. Drinking alcohol weirdly actually really helps during that, that period. And I just, I never really thought like, I'm going to stop doing heroin. It was just like, all right, I just can't handle it right now. And then it was like, I still can't handle it yet. And then it was, had been like a week and I started to think about my life and, and all, all, I go into all this into the, the book, sort of all of my train of thought. But, but the long, long story short was essentially that I didn't intentionally stop doing it. I just took a short break, which became a little bit longer break and then a little bit longer and everything. And as far as the practicality of how I actually was able to do it, 
which is probably a little bit even more interesting is I identified, I just solved it like a problem. Why is it that I can do heroin so readily? Because I know that guy and this chick and this other person, and I know I can go there to buy some. And so I just left this city. I just mm. left. I'm going to go somewhere new. I'm going to Flagstaff where I don't know anybody. Go to Flagstaff. And I'm just on the streets feeling horrible, vomiting, and just you know can't eat and just all sick from, from not having heroin. And then the thing is when somebody – I would find a way to get uh, more, I would leave. I'll go to another city but not a city I knew. And I just basically would hop around like that, force myself off of it. So this is a case, this is a case where running away from your problem actually worked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. God, exactly. God damn, man. Uh, okay. That, that all makes sense in a, God, in such a fucked up way. Um, now, I, I wanted to ask you, okay, now having come, I, I thank you for describing all of that, by the way. That's, that's quite a horrific story. You did survive that. You built your way out of that slowly. You climbed your way out of that pit. When you look back at that time, or you look at, let's, let's go macro for a second now. We've gone so micro on your life. And, and this has been a pretty free-ranging conversation. So I wanted to ask, when you look at the quote-unquote drug problem, in the United States. I mean, you, okay. were, you were the drug problem for seven years. I mean, you were right in it, every level. I, I can't think, I mean, you didn't do Coke. That's the only drug I can think of that you, you oh, know, I've done you tons of ecstasy, okay. Coke, crack, PCP, heroin, uh, GHB. I've done whippets, I've huffed gas, huffed spray paint. I sniffed glue. I've done uh, Percocet, Roxacet. Um, I've done Oxycontin. I've done, uh, uh, I did, uh, uh, salvia. I did, uh, obviously weed. I've sniffed speed. I've shot up speed. I've shot up whiskey. I've shot up beer, heroin. I've shot up morphine. Um, I've shot up, um, uh, uh, Coke as well. I've, I've sniffed heroin, shot it. Um, I've, uh, I've also um, done, of course, LSD, mushrooms, uh, mescaline, uh, many different kinds. Like I said, of ecstasy. The only, the, in, in fact, the only like street drug that I can think of that I haven't done is the newer, this newer like fentanyl. I haven't done that, and I haven't taken actual peyote buttons, although I've done mescaline. Okay. Um, and I haven't done the like old, uh, like quaaludes, like the old sort of 60s. Oh, the old lewd stuff, yeah. I just never found any. But I've done Paxil, Zoloft, Xanax, um, uh, Lexapro, Celexa, recreationally. Now, they don't yeah. get you hot, but I would just do them anyway. So, I, for example, one time I took 22, I think it was Cytolaprams. I took 22 of those and drank a bunch of, um, of, uh, of wine. Just to try, oh, maybe this will do something. You know, this was just the mentality I was in. Um, Damn, yeah. Man. Did you say, you know, I, one of the unfortunate side of, one of the unfortunate uh, experiences of Scientology for me, being over the technical divisions and, and being over people's auditing was getting their drug list. 
So I interview, you know, when you go into Scientology and you start getting auditing, they interview you and you're asked very, very invasive questions about every aspect of your life. And one of the questions is, what drugs have you taken? And that question is asked over and over and over again. And so they get a very complete list because there's auditing actions that are done in Scientology to address all the different kinds of drugs. Your drug rundown would be a fucking nightmare. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But the only thing you said in that entire list that I had never heard of before was shooting whiskey. Did you like, like shooting it up? Like, yeah. Like like directly into your body. Damn. I didn't even know you could do that. You can not recommended though. People I'm not, I'm not advocating for injecting alcohol, but I have done it myself. And at that time, here's to make, to show you the, again, the mindset I was in, I shot up beer before the whiskey and it was fresh beer with bubbles in it. And at the time, I thought that if you inject something with an air bubble, you die. I didn't even care. I didn't care. I, I, I thought that that was what, probably what would happen, and I didn't even care. And then I injected. that. See, that's the type of thing, by the way, that I did. That was when I was off of heroin. I was trying to get off of heroin. So it's like I need to in, inject something. Um, Damn. Anyway, sorry. So you're, you were asking about the United States. Yeah, I was going to get to this bigger macro question. Um, so we have drug laws. We have this war on drugs. Um, I don't particularly agree with it. I, um, I am hesitant to say, well, let's legalize everything. I'm very much on board with legalizing weed. It has medicinal purpose functions. I've seen that with my own eyes. I, I, I'm okay with that. Uh, you start talking about you know, legalizing heroin or LSD, and I go, mm, God, I just I don't know about that. I wanted to get your opinion on that and on how it's treated from a criminal aspect. We have decided in the United States it's a criminal activity. There's a view in other places that it's a medical problem, not a criminal problem. So since this came up, I thought I'd ask, what's your take on both of those things? Right. So as far as um, generally legalizing things, um, I agree with you about weed. I think that, uh, let me put it this way. If anything should be legal, it should be weed as opposed to things like alcohol. I would, I mean, there's a, a huge case to say alcohol shouldn't be legal, whereas weed should be. Now, I, I think alcohol is, um, is too ingrained in our culture to be to remove it, frankly. Um, but if you're looking at things objectively and you're looking at numbers and you're looking at statistics and you're looking at damages, I mean, alcohol is much worse. Um, now, I don't smoke weed personally. I mean, very, very rarely, maybe once a year, once every couple of years, just because someone convinced me to take a hit or whatever. And every time I'm like, eh. But, um, and I also don't sort of get along with the the idea of like, let's just become a total stoner and just like, you know, vibe out on everything, bro. And like, I'm never going to do anything. Eh, you know, but in moderation, sure. You know, or if you're a high functioning, you know, stoner, go for it. Um, um, now, as far as, as far as harder stuff, there's there's something I have to add there. You said that that you know weed has some medicinal uh, um, properties and, and stuff. Well, all of them do. All oh sure, do. sure, I mean, sure. If you're if you're, if you're tired all the time, guess what's going to help you out? Methamphetamines. You know, <laughs> there you go. It's really a question. In fact, most of them were developed as medicines. So um, the the real question is, um, for me, is is you know, d- damage versus, um, versus benefit. 
And when you think about laws, it has to be not from an individual point of view, right? So um, if I, for example, if heroin were legal, that wouldn't change my life at all because I wouldn't do it anyway. But societally, what would that change? And that's a different question. So things like methamphetamines should not be legal, I think, because number one, we have alternatives, right? We have caffeine, we have uh, pseudoephrogen types of pills and these stay awake things that are, you know, a little, little iffy. And you also have these Ritalin types of, you know, uh, lower dose, uh, weaker amphetamines that people use. Um, and so we have, like, if you have the issues that methamphetamine would solve, we have something safer and less extreme to solve that problem for you. And so I think that's a good argument to say, well, then we probably don't need the uber strong thing. Um, and it's the same with heroin because we have morphine. If you are in pain and you need an opiate to solve your problems, it's not like we just have nothing and heroin. We have that thing already. LSD to me is a bit different because, number one, we don't have anything that, that gives you the sort of um, effects that LSD gives you. Number two it's not physically addictive. And number three, it doesn't do any damage to your body that anyone can identify. There's no like lethal dose of it. I mean, you know, there's a lethal dose of everything, but there's no practical lethal dose of it. I mean, I could drink a, a cup of LSD right now and I would never be coming back down to this planet, but my <laughs> body would survive. <laughs> right. So yeah, it's water soluble even. I mean, this, this is why Hubbard's bullshit about it deposits in the fatty tissues and comes back later. And this explains you know, trips and, and flashbacks and stuff. You just go, dude, shut the fuck up. That's not how any yeah. of this works. Yeah. Flashbacks yeah. are real, but they're only real, at least in my world there. I mean, I'm, and believe me, I've done hundreds and hundreds of doses of acid. I'm telling you this, they are real, but they're real in the sense that within, let's say a week, you might open a door and suddenly be tripping again for 30 seconds and then that's it it's like i mean i never like these days i never ever have any acid anything it's not like that scary sort of like oh 20 years you're just gonna be tripping walking down the street one day never happened to me ever so that whole thing i think is ridiculous staying in the in the in the fat tissues you know uh is a whole nother ridiculous thing and it also opens the question of well if the purif works then why is it that you can't join the Sea Org if you've done LSD? Why don't you <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because right? so, he came up with the PRF to solve LSD cases. That was the whole point of him starting that research. And the tech works. So yeah. Why oh, yeah. And PCP. So um, now, do I think LSD should be legal? I don't know. It depends on the nuance. I would say maybe decriminalized, maybe controlled. I would be fine with that. I think it's a vital part of the, of the human experience to have some exposure to the psychedelic effects that are out there. Um, but it's probably I know, that, I know that there's some psychological research right now that's a very serious research on psilocybin effects and awakening perception and as some of the experience that people have under, and they're doing those under very controlled circumstances. I've, yeah. I've heard about that. And I'm all for that. I think that, that there's definitely, it is a fact to me that LSD expands your mind. 
it does. Uh, it, you are just thinking about things that, that are impossible to think about without it. I don't know how else to explain it. And now mushrooms, actually, honestly, not, not so much. Um, mushrooms are much more of a physical thing, much more of a sort of a creativity. There's a bit of mental works going on, but it's nothing compared to, to LSD. And mescaline is a totally different beast too. You know, mushrooms are kind of like things are melty and soft and fluffy and colorful and warmth and you know, you're, you get this sort of like sense of being one with the things around you and all this type of stuff. It's a bit physical, a bit hippy dippy sort of it's, it's fun, but it's one type of experience. Um, LSD is almost the opposite of that. You have a body high they call it, like in the beginning, but that's very passes very quickly. And then it's just full on mental and you, you do get hallucinations circumstantially visual, you know, audio visual, but the, vast majority of what you're experiencing is all mental stuff that's really cool um and then now mescaline the thing in peyote the drug in peyote mescaline is is very different because the hallucinations are 100 percent real 100 percent. there's no you cannot distinguish them from the actual reality which is oh real wow yeah. Like in mushrooms, you know, you're hallucinating. It's very obvious. You're looking at a tree and it's melting down into the ground. You know, you know, it's not, you know, you're on mushrooms. <clears throat> and uh, when you're on LSD, you're not in the mental, I mean, there's different stages because you peak and whatever, but in the, the highest that you can be in LSD, you're in another world. And so uh, you're not, you're not looking for a reality necessarily. You're not, you're not really comparing it to the reality you're in or whatever, but mescaline is different because you're sit like, I can tell you a quick example. I was sitting with my girlfriend at the time. This was in Ybor city in Florida, which was part of uh, uh, Tampa. And, uh, and we had done a bunch of ecstasy and this particular ecstasy was, uh, uh, had mescaline in it. And at the end of our rolling, the mescaline was hitting us, <coughs> excuse me. And, so I'm sitting there. We, could, we couldn't drive anywhere, obviously. It's late at night. We're totally screwed up. And we're sitting in their car. And we're talking and talking, whatever. And we're parked in front of this building. And we're just waiting and waiting. And blah, 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 blah. Time's going on. And, and we're just talking about whatever. And I, it, we're bored, basically. And I casually mentioned something to her about the building. And she's like, what are you talking about? What building? I'm like, the building right there. I'm looking at it. It's, it's 100% absolutely part of the world it's right there in front of me it, from every angle there's no it's not like a matrixy glitch with a k, double cap <laughs> right. there's a building there and i'm confused as to why she's being weird like i i'm actually thinking she's hallucinating that the building's not there and after about like you know half an hour of this discussion i, I i'm looking at it and then it's just gone and i'm realizing oh my God, like there is no building there. That's how mescaline is. So that is really the type of thing you need to be like off in a desert somewhere to be safe, you know? Yeah, that would be uh, very, very dangerous for way too many circumstances, way too many people. Yeah. yeah. Okay, interesting. So what about the idea of, um, again, going macro now, law enforcement versus medical in terms of addicts, people who, you know, are to the point where they're committing crime in order to feed their habit. Yeah, they're committing crimes that needs to be dealt with from a criminal aspect. But the drug, the drugs themselves, right, you're saying you're not suggesting to legalize all of these things. But how, 
from your experience, having been all the way down the goddamn chute and crawling your way back up, how do we deal with this? Um, well, I think it's pretty obvious that cri- the criminalized sort of uh, corrections, you know, the corrections that they do on people doesn't work. You stick them in prison or jail and they are back in the culture of other people that are doing that. Um, so I think in general, we need to start, you know, con- you know, continue to slant things more towards um, rehabilitation. You know, it's a, it's a complex answer because in America, we've got privatized prisons. So they're de-incentivized from solving these prison prisoner issues, um, you know, from a, from a financial point of view. You've got um, the practical point of view. The fact is many, many criminals, many drug, let's say, abusers, they don't want to reform. They don't want to change, right? If you, you know, I've been to jail several times and believe me, you're not meeting a lot of people in there going, gosh, I would love to quit doing drugs if only there was somebody to help me. It's not, that's not how they're thinking about things. Now, some of those people can still be helped and a lot of them can't. And so um, I think that there's a general hands-off sort of apathetic view towards the whole problem from the structure, from our, from our government and, and so on. They're, 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 they're not incentivized to do it and it's difficult. Uh, and so I don't see a lot of change happening there. I think that the proper way to do it would be to kind of do a, some sort of individualized look. You know, we're not going to reduce your sentence, but if you want to get better, we can help you. And if you don't want to, we won't help you. And it's no, there's no other benefit. You're not going to do this for some other motive. If you want to help you, we'll help you. And there needs to be, I think, some social programs available within prisons. I know there's some already, but you know, it needs to be more institutionalized into part of the process. Of like, look, you screwed up. You did something that that's that's not legal, and we need to you, you, you offer you a real, actual chance to start changing your life around if you want it. I think that that's a really good, you know, half step to, to progress there. Because the thing is when you go to jail, they don't, no one cares about you at all. It's not, no one's correcting you. No one's helping you. They just strip you down, you know, search you, throw you in a box with a bunch of other people. No one talks to you. Uh, someone will swing by and tell you that your arraignment is on such and such date. And then you go to that thing. And then they tell you, oh, your sentencing is on such and such date. And then you go to that thing. That's it. You get a public uh, attorney or lawyer. Neither one of them care if you're off drugs. And you just eventually get out of jail. And the longer you've been in jail, especially prison, the more further indoctrinated you are with this concept of um, of rebelling against the system or negating it by continuing to do what you want to do, which just so happens to be drugs and, and being a criminal, you know, it's, it's a whole culture. And so, uh, the short answer for me is we would, we would need to start offering some kind of optional, non-religious, non-commercially gained solution to these people. Yeah. Good answer. Cause I, by the way, just a quick, and by the way, I think we should, uh, we should retroactively uh, free people who have violated laws that are no longer illegal, especially when it comes to marijuana. 
big time. I could not agree with you more about that. It, and um, I actually asked about that and was told, well, it would take a pardon from the governors of the states. And none of the governors of any of the states in the United States are at all interested in the political firestorm that that would create with a bunch of people getting all pissed, even though it's perfectly legal to do weed in 13 states now or 15 or however many it is now. Um, you know, to retroactively pardon those people would somehow, like there's no motivation to do it. Is sort of the is sort of what I'm told. I thought that was rather callous and cold, but then again, that's politics and government for you. So, right. you know, if there's no incentive to do it, and there's lots of people who are going to get really pissed at you if you do, then you know, unless you're able as a politician to hold a moral stance or ground, which very few of them can, uh, then there you go. You know? Yeah, I mean the you know how the social media works. You're not going to see so and so from uh, you know Delaware releases a bunch of people that were um, only charged with uh, marijuana related you know personal possession charges, and they reduced other people you know people that had multiple crimes. They re- they reduced it by the amount that was due to that one. What you're going to see is so and so from Delaware lets seven thousand convicts out. Exactly. That's it. And That's then, right. 50% of the audience is going to take only that away from it, you know? That's right. Exactly. And that's a, that's not just our pol- political system uh, problem, but also our social media problem. Yeah. Um, we're going to have to do a whole other episode, by the way, on China, because I've got 10 billion questions still for you about China, which we have not even touched at all. And we're yeah. over two hours on this, so we're going to have to probably wrap up fairly soon. Um I did not expect to get into this whole drug thing, but I am absolutely been fascinated by it. And it is a, uh, it, it's a very important topic. I also wanted to make a point. And I wanted to get your feedback on this. I thought that the, that the talk you just gave here describing what it's like to be on all these different drugs, what the differences are between them. And you talk from ex- you know, real experience on this. This isn't some theoretical for you. I thought that was pretty enlightening, but at the other, but on the other hand, I couldn't help thinking to myself, this is something kids need to hear. You know, not when we're doing drug education, it's all about bad, 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 bad. That that was my, I will only speak from my own experience on it. I have not been in school in decades, but from what I've seen, what I've heard since I left school, it's pretty much kind of more of the same. It's, this is bad. This drug does this to you and it's really bad. This drug does this to you and it's really bad. But when you talk from a more honest place of, well, yeah, it's bad, but here's actually what happened. You remove a layer of mystery connected with these substances. Now they actually get, oh, this is going to do this. And actually it's, you know, it's pretty bad, but it's not, or it could be bad, but it's not as bad as say this one over here, which man, if I ever see that again, I'm going to just shoot everybody who brings it in the room. That stuff is just absolutely toxic waste you know there's there's a there's an ability to differentiate between these things they're not all the same and i think a lot of the thing that drives kids is they want to know what's it feel like what's it like what does it taste like what's the experience like if you can come in there and talk real honestly and answer all the questions from a place of knowing (laughs) i i I think that would have real value i don't know what do you think yeah, I, there was a time in my life where I was still trying to figure out what to what I could do to help people where I actually 
ran that idea past myself several times of like, maybe I could be one of those people that goes to schools and just kind of says, look, you know, I'm going to tell you the real deal of what's going on. And, uh, you know, are you going to feel good when you uh, do heroin? Yeah, of course. You know, the first time it's going to be great. Here's how that plays out. You know, it, you're going to you're going to feel this way. You're going to think, well, that was you know way different than I thought. And you're going to slowly start to do this. And here's what you'll start to notice. And here's, you know, and slowly and I'll just sort of explain the evolution. So they start to realize, like, wow, that is a really dangerous trap that I, that, that I, I better be careful around because that is very easy to fall into that trap. That's part of the, the discussion that's missing. And I think, and you're absolutely right, I think that because of the way we educate people, uh, kids about drugs, both because of the mystery, but also because we overstate the, the drugs compared to their initial effects. So if you hear that, hey, if, you know, uh, oh, smoke and crack, that's for crackheads. And let's just say you smoke a little bit of crack, you're going to have a, the first feeling you're going to have mentally, other than the highness, obviously, is you're going to be like, well, that wasn't that crazy. You know, you, it, you, you, your guard goes way down as you go, oh, okay, well, I guess all that stuff they're saying is just kind of like, you know, just they're just fanatic about it. And then you, you, your guard goes down and you're kind of ready to take it in, which I think is a really dangerous position to be in. It's a, you're in a lot better position if you understand the concept that like, yeah, if you, um, you know, if you, if you take a painkiller, uh, like a heavy painkiller, like, you know, hydrocodone or something, you're going to feel good. Period. That's going to happen. Now keep doing it. And here's what's going to start happening after that. And then soon you're going to have this effect and you're going to feel that. And before you know it, now you're popping those things because that's what's starting to make you feel normal. And, the, and you're, you're getting more and more irritable and the people around you are starting complaining and you're, you're getting mad at them for complaining. And then you, you find yourself flipping out on the cat, screaming at them. And you're wondering, like, why am I so angry? You know, and you start to slowly like introduce them to what the full picture is. Then the first, if they end up taking an Oxycontin because they broke uh, or, or hydrocodone because they, you know, break their, their pinky or whatever. They're going to know already. Oh, here. Okay. This does feel good. This is the first stage that, that I know about. If I keep exactly. going, it's going to take me down that crazy path. So you're exactly. absolutely right. The education that we do is, is ridiculous. And I, and I remember for myself growing up in the eighties and nineties, you know, the drug education that I got was dare slogans, uh, dare slogans, you know, going to a urinal and it's like, don't do drugs or like you go and play video games at an arcade. And it's just like, uh, what is it like winners don't do drugs or what, you know, those types of things. It's like, well, that's not, I mean, what IQ do you have to be for that to be totally effective again? <laughs> just exactly. Well, the exactly. video game not to do drugs, you know? Exactly. Um, this might seem like an extremely bizarre segue, but it actually fits in with this is, um, you know, I watched, uh, um, Oh God! What the hell was the uh, the movie? It was it was a documentary about Mister Rogers. I, I, I saw a post about that. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, this movie is I can't remember the name of it right now, uh, which is horrible. But it was um, it was absolutely stunningly good, and it was hard to imagine that somebody that good could actually have lived. Like it yeah. almost gives you the idea that. I mean, this is going to really piss some people off, but I will just say it almost gives you the idea of how you could imagine 
Jesus could have lived. Because yeah. I don't really think that there was a guy named Jesus. I, I, I've, I've done a little bit of research and I go, mm, I don't know. But if he did, it would be like Mr. Rogers. Like, like there's somebody that good. They're just inherently, you just can't believe how good this man was. And what amazing amounts of compassion and empathy he had, especially for children, without be it, it being even one microsecond of creepiness. He was just a good guy. Now, the reason I think of him right now and when we're talking about this is he said, and at one point there was either a quote from him or there was a statement about him that basically communicated Fred Rogers never forgot what it was like to be a child. You know, there's little bodies, you got all these people above you, they're telling you what to do all day, they're controlling your body, they're moving you around, they're telling you this, they're telling you that. It's a, it's a disorienting, confusing experience. You're trying to wend your way through this, learning stuff as you go. He remembered all that. And he talked to them from their point of view more so than from his point of view when it came to educating them and talking to them as them, not as, you know, I'm an adult and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to you as though you're an adult, but I'm going to use simpler words. It's a, it's a different thing than when you actually duplicate where the child is coming from and what his view of the world is, because it's not the same as an adult view. I mean, this is where Scientology gets it. Like Hubbard just totally fucking lost the plot talking about treating kids like little, you know, adults in little bodies. It's not even remotely the same. And I just couldn't help but think about that in terms of this drug education thing. You know, like they lose that. I don't think they're thinking about what do these kids think how do they think and yeah. talk to that level you know yeah you're right it, it's i think that the the general way that culturally we discourage doing things in america is very weird you know it's it's we just say don't do that and then if you do it then we arrest you and send you to jail it's like well okay that's that's a very there's kind of the human element missing there of like the explanation and the nuance and the, and the, you know, the whole experience. And when it comes to kids, you've got that extra layer where they're not totally aware and their brains aren't formed and they're not in control of their own destiny. And they're extremely curious and they make a lot of mistakes. And when you just say, don't do that. I know that as me, as a kid, the first question I'm asking is, well, what happens if I do do that? Exactly. <laughs> That's right. And, and we all thought that. It's just we forget. You get older and you just, you, you forget. I don't know. I, I, and it, and we, when it comes to the people who need to be dealing with kids, we need people who haven't forgotten. And we need those guys. You know, yeah. I, I, I think that's a more important trait than even how much they know. Yeah. Can and, you know, I saw, that, I saw that post that you, that you, you posted something about that Mr. Rogers documentary. I haven't watched it yet. But I, and I think I, I made a reply there, but I'll say it here too, which is is it's really sad that because I know who Mr. Rogers is, we all do. Um, those of us that are you know old, it's sad that I just kind of in the back of my mind assumed that he was like some creepy pedo guy. You know what I mean? Like I just I feel regretful. I haven't even seen it yet, but if, if he's truly like was really a, a, just a great guy, I feel like oh that's so sad that like. I can just assume that, you know, 
and I, I feel uh, I feel like I owe him an apology. You know, <laughs> so I'm yeah. Sorry. Well, yeah. Well, I'll tell you. I, you know, the difference for me, and for anybody who's seen the movie, they'll get this immediately. But this is a pretty easy, pretty easy idea here. Is you look at what he did and how he did it, and then you look at Pee Wee's Playhouse, Saturday Morning Cartoons, uh, you know, the other kids shows that came out, uh, Barney the fucking dinosaur and the 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 those really weirdo things i again the names i'm uh forgetting oh, yes oh my god those are i actually thought the first time i turned the channel and saw them for the very first time and i was not a kid i was an adult and i see these things and i thought to myself have i just taken lsd <laughs> that was literally my thought because <laughs> I can't believe how weird this is. Uh, I, I just, and I, I, you know, and I've been through a lot and then I see this and I'm just like, I've never seen anything this weird. Uh, my point is that I think the people who, who came up with those things are the kind of example of what I'm talking about of people who didn't, who don't get it. They're not, they're not talking to kids. They're, they're doing programming for them or for other adults, nudge, nudge, wink, wink or something. And they love throwing in adult humor and, and adult only jokes and stuff in the middle of these kids programs. And it's like, no, man, you lost the plot. This is for the kids and the kids need to be talked to as the kids, you know? Yeah, exactly. And they do that. They do that all the time now with the, the adult jokes, adult humor, subtleties in, in, in these cartoons or these animated films. Um, you know, I, have been working in visual effects for a long time and we've done a lot of, uh, in, in a few companies, we've done a lot of different big, you know, big, big films. I mean, this one that, that I'm at now, we did, you know, parts of star Wars episode seven and eight and rogue one and, you know, Jurassic world and, you know, big, you know, big movies, but we also do, um, these animated films and I don't watch them. I don't even watch them because to me, they're just this weird hybrid where like, to me, I think of them as a kid's movie, but then all my, you know, people that I work with, they're like, no, it's not for kids. It's, you know, adults can watch it too. And I'm like, then who is it for? I don't understand who's the, because when I was a kid, I liked kid stuff. You know what I mean? Like I liked GI Joe and I liked, you know, the things that I understood what was happening and I could get along, you know, I liked the Smurfs. I liked whatever it was <laughs> right. for me. You know, I didn't want to go and watch something that was like partially for me, but also a bit for now. It makes financial you know, sense because you want those parents to bring you to the theater or whatever. But uh, I, I just I, you know, I just think the quality goes down, especially for the kids, you know, viewing uh, perspective. Um, but, you know, one thing about remembering childhood, though, when you first said that, I thought of Michael Jackson. I, th I think he didn't <laughs> forget what it was like to be a child either. So you got you got to still be a good guy not to say he wasn't i don't you know i don't know the details of what he was really like but um certainly he did he remembered it in a way that was that was at least toxic to him potentially toxic to children so yeah. you know there's there's something more about mr rogers if he's this great guy than just remembering you also got to be a good person and really care and really want to be a good guy you know absolutely absolutely uh very good point i'm glad you made that point because uh, yep. that's an important one. Yeah, uh, it's not just the Michael Jackson syndrome. <laughs> exactly. yeah, you're you're kind of right, but that's the creepy way of doing that. And there was yeah. just—I don't know what to say. There's just you—you you come away from that movie knowing that this guy was not creepy, and um, and it's so inspiring. 
So I, I, I anyway, highly recommend that. All right. Uh, like I said, I got another billion questions for you, but we're going to have to do it another time. Uh, yeah. We've, yeah, we've we've covered a lot of territory here. We've got a lot I, more to talk about. You know, we got yeah. Scientology, we got China, we got politics, we got all kinds of fun stuff we can dig our teeth into, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I just want to wrap this up by saying that I think, uh, I hope folks who have been watching here um, can see that, you know, recovering from Scientology is also recovering some normalcy and recovering some reality and life in the real world, the big wide world and uh, the ups and downs of that and dealing with it and using whatever, you know, screwed up tools we learned in Scientology to deal with those things uh, and kind of move on anyway and shed the bullshit and keep the good stuff and, and try to make a go of it. And, and I think I'm enjoying talking to you because that we're, we're, we're on the other side of this more. You know, we're not dwelling so much on the abuses of Scientology and the experience of it, but, you know, what we've done since. Yeah, and, you know. Exactly. And I think there's a lot of lessons for people there too. So why not talk about those things? You know. Yeah, it's it's there's there's a lot going on with uh, with Scientology, the organization. There's you know I, I view that as a separate discussion than Scientology, the sort of philosophy or whatever. Um, there's so much to talk about there. But yeah, I'm at the I'm at the place in my life where uh, there's not a huge amount of point to sort of attack the philosophy because it's so obviously over the top ridiculous that it's just kind of an easy target. Um, Scientologists themselves, uh, I don't really feel like going after necessarily. I mean, they do dumb things. And if they, if they kind of like disconnect from me after 20 years, cause I went on a TV program and talked about my experience, then, they're not my friend and not, I may talk some smack about the fact that they did that or whatever, but Scientology, the organization, the corporation, I think, uh, is, is still is abusive and it's just doing so many things that are bad for it, bad for the world, bad for its, is, uh, you know, um, parishioners just really, uh, really an insane organization that, um, that I, that I, I definitely think, there's a lot of stuff we could talk about. Um, but for myself personally, like you said, I don't, you know, I don't walk around all day thinking about Scientology and how, oh, gee, you know, it's, that sucked. I'm thinking about today. I'm thinking about how can I get this done? How can, you know, what's my next step? How do I build this website or how do I, you know, finish this chapter or the book or, you know, I'm, I'm focusing on the now and, and the, uh, you know, near term future. And I think you're doing that too. And, um, when I was first out of Scientology, I don't know about with you, but with me, I was very, very uh, allergic to the idea of associating with people who weren't Scientologists anymore, like ex-Scientologists, let's say. Mm. Because for me, it's not like I was disillusioned from Scientology and then left it. I just was disconnected from and lived on the streets. I still believed everything. I didn't, by default, it's not, you know, I didn't have like a, well, this, I'm done with this. I'm out of here. It was just like, it, it slowly degraded over time into nothingness. And so um, I really didn't communicate with any non-Scientologist, ex-Scientologist. They still had that dark, cloud that stigma about you know their sps like you chris shelton you want to suppress 
the planet. You want people to not do well because you are you have so many crimes that you think that as we all become more aware, we're gonna we're gonna find out what a horrible you know criminal you are. I mean, this is just the the way that I was thinking about things. And even if I didn't think it was right, it's like why bother risking it? You know, why bother getting connected with these people that I might get sick from? I might get, die. I might get hit by a car because I talked to Chris Shelton. Literally, this is how the thought process is. So. Um, so I just avoided it, but, you know, uh, after ha- starting to get into communication with, you know, Aaron Smith Levin, yourself, um, and other people in the community and, you know, I still have my legs and I'm still fine. And it's been, you know, a year now I don't feel okay. Uh, I just have more of a comfort level where I'm like, well, either I'm an SP too, so might as well hang out with the rest of them or, uh, or, hey, maybe all the SP stuff is just bullshit, you know? <laughs> yeah, thank. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. So now I'm a lot more comfortable talking about it. And um, and I feel like I'm kind of, you know, opening up quite, quite a lot about these experiences that I've had. And also, to be honest with you, at the time that I was having all these thoughts, I kind of assumed that this was a similar path to almost any other Scientology kid. Um, that didn't become a Scientologist. And uh, so that's been interesting on my end to hear other people's stories about what their experience was like. Like the most fascinating part of this discussion for me was learning just that little snippet into what your life with your parents was like at your home and how they talked to you about the Scientology lore because that's so real in my mind how things were for me. And I can kind of contrast that and go, wow, it's like a, just, it's a different type of experience that I didn't never imagined, you know? Um, so I, I study, I, I, I treat it now like something we can talk about and learn from. Um, I'm not always on attack mode, but, uh, but don't get me wrong. I, I am willing to go there because there's a lot of screwed up things that they're doing. Yep. Big time, big time. Cool, man. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up now. Otherwise we're going to go for another hour. I could do it all day. I could do it all day. (laughs) <laughs> I know, I know, me too, but uh, my viewers probably are like, okay, okay, enough. Uh, okay, but we are going to do more uh, because clearly we have a lot of stuff to talk about. Um, awesome. So thank you very much for being on here, and uh, and let me just wrap up here. Folks, uh, thanks very much for coming around and uh, being part of this episode. Uh, leave any questions, comments, or feedback, good, bad, or sideways, in the comment section below here on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. I would very much like to hear what you guys have to say uh, about what we talked about and what else you might like us to talk about based on uh, what we did in this discussion. All right. See you guys next week. Bye-bye.